What's up, everybody? I'm JJ John J. Stramski. And I'm Jason Goff. And if you haven't heard, The Ringer has gone local. I'm bringing the fire. I'm bringing the rain from the Big Apple with my show, New York, New York. And I'm repping Chi-Town with my new show, The Full Go on All Things Chicago. We've got episodes three nights a week with all the reaction to the local teams and guests. Plus bonus episodes around all the big games and storylines. So whether you're uptown, downtown, in the burbs, or a transplant. Make sure you follow New York, New York, and The Full Go on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game and they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right at first half of the first game. I don't know, West Coast time. That's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30. Perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. We're also brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, as well as The Ringer Podcast Network. I hope you're listening to the new Prestige TV podcast. We covered Squid Game. We did some season finale, Billions, kind of a shocker at the end of uh, Billions. Logan Murdoch and Big Waz broke that down. Van and Chris Ryan are going to be doing Ted Lasso season finale on Friday. They got screeners. So that's going up. And then uh, tomorrow, tomorrow night, me and Joanna Robinson, new addition to The Ringer, we're going to do a succession Hall of Fame episode. I won't tell you what it is, but we'll be putting it up Wednesday night. So check out the Prestige TV pod. You can also check out New York, New York with John Jastrzemski. I'm going to be nice. It's a great podcast. Will probably be a somber podcast tonight, but he does a great job. Uh, and we have tried to stay very civil and friendly to one another. I think I think our relationship has gotten through it, but you can listen to New York, New York if you want. John Jastrzemski's reaction coming up on this podcast, my reaction to Yankees-Red Sox, the play-in game. Me and my buddy Hench, we taped it right after the game. If you don't want to hear that, fast forward about 33 minutes after the Pearl Jam music, and you can listen to me and Jonathan Charks from The Ringer talking about uh, Ben Simmons and the Dallas Mavericks, two storylines that we are pretty fascinated by heading into this upcoming NBA season. And then a guy I've been trying to get on this podcast forever, he finally came on, the one, the only Michael Keaton. How about this for a podcast? A live Red Sox reaction, NBA and Michael Keaton. Can't do better than that. What a night. I'm drained. I'm happy. I'm excited to say, here comes Pearl Jam.
All right, taping this literally right after the Red Sox-Yankees game. Red Sox win 6-2. to two. My buddy Kevin Hench is here. We have known each other since uh, the fall of 2002. We struggled through the Boone home run season, Grady Little, all that stuff. We celebrated no 4 We've known each other forever. During that entire time, the Red Sox have flipped the Red Sox-Yankee rivalry. Once again, it happened tonight. Once again, the demons were there, the baggage, a million Bucky Dent references. We made uh, it, Hench. We made he's it. He's in the stand. They're interviewing him in the stands. Like, why isn't this guy being assaulted? He just walked freely in Fenway Park. Yeah. What's happening? That's that true. shows you. That shows you how calm we are now that we have the upper hand. Right. Pre two thousand four, I'm not sure he's in the stands. It might not have been safe for him. But uh, look, we've watched. We watch way too much Red Sox. I thought I would watch less baseball when I'm older. I, I watch more. You and I, we text. Every game, we know this team inside out. I was more confident than you heading you into tonight. You saved me. You, I didn't. I was fully going to do our move of buying the win, <laughs> and you talked me out of it. You saved me money. You were like, "I think they're going to win this game," and I was like, "Really?" And then you like made three good points, and I was like, "Oh, I won't do my move of of betting against the Red Sox and then being happy anyway. I'll just be happy without losing money." <laughs> well, we but had. I, I I said to Schwerber. Trust him. Verdugo, I trust him. And then who was the third? Endeavors. And all three of them were good tonight. And then we got the random Bogarts who's been in a semi-coma for the last few weeks and came through with the, with he drew first blood, got it going. It's so crazy because both you and I bet the Red Sox over 80.5 wins. We were like, they're not a 500 team. They're better than that. Yeah. Um, and, but like you, I also was like, I, I can't watch a fucking 150 baseball games this year. Like, and then between, you know, my catastrophic knee injury and ending my soccer career, we'll call it. I, I was in a leg brace. I was Jimmy Stewart in rear window for the whole summer. I basically, <laughs> I watched more Red Sox games this year than like since 1978 with my dad in Winthrop, Massachusetts. Like I couldn't believe how invested I became in this very flawed team yeah. And then they just started to really rip us apart down the stretch. And that, that Washington national series was like those three games, the other team is not trying. And we <laughs> just can barely, we can barely eke out these wins against the last place team down five, one on Sunday. <laughs> to they have, yeah. That Sunday game. All they care about is when are we taking out Ryan Zimmerman? Sixth inning, seventh inning, eighth. Yeah, we just exactly. got to get him to standing up. A retirement ceremony, and you guys want to play a baseball <laughs> game? And then the kid who not only had never started a big league game, but had a 6.43 ERA in double A this year, completely shuts us down. <laughs> like 19 year old Doc Gooden. And yeah. I'm like, oh my God, we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to just have to play the Jays in a one game playoff. And here we are. I know it speaks to, how damaged we were as children and nothing can change that, that it feels like we just won the world series, like ending those motherfucker season <laughs> that I, we should have a duck boat parade in the, it, like we're going to get swept by the race and we won't give a shit. <laughs> we're going to be smiling all off season, like seeing the looks on their faces. Like, I mean, you and I, half of our texts are about Brett Gardner. He goes over three with three K's and I'm just going to watch those on a loop all night. <laughs> Yeah, could could someone make that YouTube clip for us? I just I, we both detest him. He kills the Red Sox, even though the stats aren't as bad as it seems like when you're watching it. You know, you mentioned the Yankee thing, how it's like everything else is gravy. 
I was thinking, I think it was Mark Cram and SI wrote about the third Ali Frazier fight when there was no title at stake. And he was like, this was basically about the championship of each other. And that was all that meant. Like, we didn't need yeah, a title exactly. for that one. It's like, we just, and that's what all these Yankees Red Sox things feel like. Now, I, if anything, I think the Yankees have, uh, you know, more at stake just because they haven't won since 09. There's 17, 18 year old Yankee fans that have never seen their, don't remember seeing their team celebrate. But for us, it's like, if you had told me you're going to beat the Yankees in this game, but you're going to, you're going to lose the one the next three rounds. I'm like, done. I'll take it. No Sign problem. Me up. No Good. problem. Uh, you know, and we beat Garrett Cole in 2018 in the, uh, in the ALCS against the Astros. And like, he might have a little bit of a Red Sox problem in his head with only a couple hundred million left on that deal. Well, we were set, we were texting if the Red Sox can win this game, the Cole thing with the Yankees fans is going to be really crazy because it's a, it's going to be a borderline unforgivable offense. They even said to Boone, they threw him in the dugout. Was he healthy? You know, yeah. they, was there anything physical? Like Boone's like, no, no, he's fine. Yeah, he just, I just sucks. I, he just I just sucks had to think about it. He was terrified. It's just the biggest game of his life and he sucks. No, no, no injury. <laughs> Uh, you think you don't think he's going to get a standing ovation when they give him his Cy Young award on opening day next year at the stadium, right? Because Robbie Ray was going to win that award. And then the Yankees just had batting practice off Robbie Ray in a must win game for Robbie Ray. Like Robbie Ray lost more than the Cy Young award. The Blue Jays lost their season when he got shelled in that game, uh, leading in the sixth. Well, uh, the best part of the Cole thing, first of all, they pulled them pretty fast. Like I, I actually thought it was you smart. guys both wanted him to stay in yeah we're like oh we have such a better we this is how far cole has fallen we were both like we have a much better chance of scoring off him than clay holmes right who, who is available at the trade deadline with his right. four and a half who, era who by the way i think i called clint holmes in about five texts i was like i i hope they keep cole and not clint holmes i didn't even know his first name the uh the cole thing as it wasn't bad enough that he completely lets down the city, his team, he becomes like the guy you point to for who's the most overpaid guy who didn't come through. He has A-Rod in the booth who's killing him. It's like A-Rod's like Chris Webber. He has no long-term memory of the fact that he was the biggest choke artist of his entire era. He's <laughs> like, wow, man, Garrett Cole didn't come through. It's like, well, okay, pot. You're saying Kettle didn't come through? Give me a break. Uh, I, I realized about in the eighth inning how happy I was when even A-Rod's voice stopped bothering me. I was right. like, wow, I must really be in some kind of euphoria when I'm mildly <laughs> enjoying this nonsensical blather from, I mean, A-Rod, as we've always said, nobody unites Yankee fans and Red Sox fans like A-Rod. Everyone's like, yeah. oh, we all hate that guy. We hate that guy. And it is him going on, just prattling on for the entire broadcast is the dumbest guy in the bar explaining baseball to you. like. How does how does this work? ESPN goes, we got to get that guy as the lead analyst on our back. What? <laughs> Nobody thinks he's a good analyst. Well, it's like he needs a translator not to help him speak English, but to help us understand what the fuck he's saying because he'll talk for two minutes and then it'll end and Vasquez, you know, he won't even kind of know what to say because A-Rod has just done this circle around whatever well, his point was. Said, You're like, am I supposed to understand what just what was just said? Or he spends eight minutes explaining that Alex Cora wants to get some runs this inning. Right. What Cora wants to do here 
because uh, he's a good manager. Let's get some runs. Right. He's got to be aggressive. Got to get some runs. And then the one thing he was able to seize on the Yankees third base coach making the egregious decision to send somebody home. And now we had to see replays over and over again because A-Rod had finally made a good point. Back to your Yankees Red Sox uniting him. He's also like kind of a pathological liar. Like he says stuff. At one point he says during the broadcast to to Matt, like, oh, these fans in Boston, they're talking about the pizza story. It's like, oh, these fans in Boston. I, I mean, that's why I love coming back here. It's like, you don't love coming back here. Everyone in Boston hates you. There's no way you love coming back to Boston for any reason. What are you saying? How can no, you say that with a straight really, face? He really does just seem like a slimy politician. Like he just lies so easily. It's just yeah. so natural for him. Um, but, you know, that it's funny. You and I agreed 100% that that fucking quick hook on Evaldi was crazy. He was dealing. He gives up a, you know, a, a pesky pole home run on a, on a breaking ball in a bad spot. But then on an 0-2 pitch, Judge beats out an infield single. It's not time to hit the panic button. Well, He's, and also a play, the shortstop, I think a really good shortstop yeah, makes that play. Sure. We, it took one of the secrets. a long time to go through that process as an offensive tackle beat the throw to first. But um, <laughs> well, one of the secrets with this Red Sox team is really nobody's good defensively unless Kiki in center field has moments, but Bogarts doesn't really have a ton of range. Nobody should beat that out. But anyway, Cora, I, I, we were both like, he's coming out, Nate's dealing. one pitches? What is yeah. happening? Um, and then, and, and look, it's good. Like, you know, it's always better to be lucky than good, right? I mean, that's, that's what the Patriots have taught us. Like, it's just... So then Cora makes the wrong decision. Brazier gives up another missile to Stanton. Oh my God, I'm not going to miss that guy just hitting rockets all over <laughs> Fenway Park, which he's been doing for a month. I still really do not understand how the first two balls did not land on the turnpike. I, I'm looking at the trajectory and I'm looking at the exit velocity. I'm like, that's got to be gone. But so he hits the missile, his second missile off the wall. And when the ball hits the wall, we're going to lose this game. Like, we're going to lose this game. And then Nevin waves Judge. Well, hold on. Just, Go backwards. Kiki makes a really good play. He hustles over. He's the one who gets it. He was, when they showed the replay, he's pretty far away yeah, from where the ball hits. He has been unbelievable in center field all year, gunning guys down. And I actually think what Nevin probably saw was Verdugo not playing, not playing the ball off the wall, thinking... If the center fielder is playing that ball, I actually have a little more time to get this guy home. When in reality, Kike playing that ball sped the whole process up and he got the ball in quickly. And the way Bo Bogey threw it home, I was like, is this guy, where is this guy going to be when the throw, when the camera goes wide and we see, you know, is Judge going to be getting high fives in the dugout? I had no sense for how close this play was going to be. And then like Ploiecki just, has got him by 20 feet and puts the tag on him. And that just felt like, it's like, I was like, we're going to win this game. As somebody, you've you've had to listen to me for 20 years talk about Dale Spame and Wendell Kim. <laughs> there is a third base coach karma when a guy um, who should have nothing to do with the outcome of the game, he's not on the roster, just devastates an inning like that. It's so hard to overcome. So I just had, I was like, oh, that's it. They're, they're not going to, I didn't think they were going to get off the mat after that. And then we tacked on. Well, hold uh, on, hold on. Hold that thought about the, the third base coach piece. Cause the wall was the other piece of this. And ESPN made sure 
I didn't watch any of the pregame because I know what they're going to do. I knew they're going to have like the 20 minute documentary of 1978. Like 2004 never happened. Two thousand us beating us in 2018. Not mentioned the entire broadcast. I don't think we just beat these guys three years ago. The wall, Bucky Dent, Pop Fly goes over, and it's like this is symbolic of the stupid Red Sox team that we root for and we love where Fenway Park is actually our enemy most of the time, right? This game, Stanton hits three home runs. <laughs> like, he's got to be in the locker room right now. Like, hey, how'd you do in the game? I hit three home runs. Somehow I only scored once. I mean, when he didn't run on the first one, it was like, well, obviously the ball hit a bird. Like, I mean, yeah, he's, he's, he can't be mad at him. He knows where that ball lands. I still like that you were explaining to me that your your dad was giving the weather report. And I'm like, I don't understand how these balls are not leaving the yard. Yeah, my dad was saying it was a little thick. So the 1978 baggage, which I think had 2004 and everything else not happened, let's be honest, we would have been in the fetal position for, what, two days straight? This, this well, oh my God, this is, we're going to relive the single worst sports memory of my childhood this is is we have to live this back that you know my wife still like yells at me like haven't the championships done anything to your nervous system like like why are you pacing like a maniac i'm like i i can't explain it i don't know i you would think i'd be more relaxed but a one game season ending series against the yankees it's impossible especially with like 1978 was such a complicated summer for me with like my parents divorce and like I was like I was just totally I mean you've written about this like the Red Sox were such an escape for us and like like a safe haven and then they were abusive like we're like wait a second (laughs) what is happening and so those those scars uh don't go away fast but I think between 2004 2018 and now 2021 ending these motherfucker season Seeing that Brett Gardner face walk meekly back to the dugout after three pathetic whiffs, it, it's, you know, it's starting to, the healing has begun. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, ESPN run by a Yankee fan, Jimmy Pitaro, nice guy, but Yankee fan. Uh, A-Rod in the booth was on the Yankees forever. Seems like most of the people that work for ESPN, at least behind the scenes, seem to be Yankee fans. So they, they steer it all toward this Boston baggage, Bucky Dent, 1978. It's like, the real theme here is that game, the, you know, John Jastrzemski made this point when I went on his podcast yesterday. They had more at stake because this is now like a, this is the century we're talking about here where the Red Sox have just flipped the script over and over again. And now here we go again. We ended another Yankee season and you felt two weeks ago when they came in and just kicked the shit out of us for that Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And you, you saw the chest starting to swell out. And we were on a couple different text threads and all of us were just like, God damn it. Don't let these zombies come back to life. Don't let these, these annoying Yankee fans who tormented us for most of our lives. Don't, don't give them confidence. Don't please not. It's like, and, and then I, they're that, showing the Halloween ads of Michael Myers where it's like, I thought he died in the last like seven movies. He's back. And if, I felt the same way about Yankee fits. And uh, that Friday night, Evaldi start where it's like, we're like, oh my God they've completely figured this guy out. It's just batting practice. And and he was amazing today. You mentioned the text threads. I always feel bad because I know you and I are both on 40 text threads, but you and I are also on multiple text threads 
So we've got our Roto text thread. We've got our gambling text thread. We've got our Red Sox text thread. We've got our Patriots text thread. But like there were a couple threads tonight where I'm like, I want to make this point to these guys, but I know I've already made it to Simmons twice over here. And now Simmons is like, okay, I get it. How many times are you going to make this point? And a text, it's like, it's a different thread. It's, right. I know I just made the exact same point to you on the other thread. I like, you're like a stand-up comedy comic doing different late night shows, doing like know, the same like, riffs. Can I use this material with Kellison? I think I just used it with Simmons and he's in this room. Uh, well, we're, we're on this thread. We don't have to say who's on it, but we, we've been on it for most of the year relatively new and we named it after it, it started when Bobby Dahlbeck, it seemed like his career was over and he was destined to become Crash Davis. And right after we started the thread, he started hitting and we renamed it the Bobby Dahlbeck thread. Then it's the Bobby Dahlbeck Cooperstown thread. <laughs> and he was huge. You knew tonight was going to be a bad night for him because the teams with the hard throwing right-handers, he's overmatched. But it was still like kind of symbolic of this team where this guy was like this bird that had the broken wing that we just nursed back to health with positive text. I feel like he should thank us. And I got to say a one, a one pitch out first pitch of the game, hard ground ball to Bobby D you know, and, and even though he's not the butcher that Schwarber is, who's just learning how to play first base yeah. in the pennant race, you know, he's been very shaky. And so it was like, Ooh, a one pitch out on a hard hit ground ball to first Bobby right. D. Cooperstown bound. Couple other good things happened. The Stanton did the hype video earlier today, which made me really optimistic. I feel like that stuff backfires, what, 99% of the time? We're old enough now. We know how this goes. It's like, oh, you did that? Great. This is great for us. That happened. The crowd, I thought, especially first couple innings since COVID started, I think that was the best Boston crowd I've seen. It was one of the best sports crowds, period. But, but, had friends that were there just said that it was just electric. And, you know, there's Yankee fans there too. It's almost a little more like an English soccer crowd or something where there's little fan base and little territories all over the place. But uh, Remy comes out oh, and Remy was announcing games earlier this year and he's had all these health battles. And we had this unbelievable announcing situation with O'Brien, Remy, and Eck, which I think is probably the best three-man local booth we've had for any sport in Boston ever. And then Remy just is gone from the broadcast. Like, what happened? This isn't good. And we knew his health wasn't good. He comes out tonight before the game. Of course, he played in 78. Um, he was in that game, but he comes out. Nobody expected him. He had the oxygen in his nose through the first pitch, but it was really emotional. And it was like the, the, the first couple of innings, just you wouldn't have known COVID was going on. And, uh, and Eck catching the first pitch and Eck, you know, Eck has like sustained us like a therapist through this season because yeah. he he sees the games just like we do, you know, and he doesn't pull any punches, but he's also incredibly enthusiastic about guys, you know, and then like, you know, Whitlock coming in and throwing 98 at the end. He's a rule five guy from the Yankees. So the bookends to this game are former Yankee Ivaldi and rule five Yankee Whitlock starting and finishing this game and ending the, the evil empire season. I mean, it, it was just, it was glorious. You know, I, I, and we should also mention big game, Nate, who that was the best he's looked all year. I know they pulled them too soon, but that was what, that was like 2018, Nate, I felt like, didn't you? Flooding the zone with strikes. You know, they were, they were chronicling all his swinging strikes in the zone and he was just beating guys in the zone. Like, 97. <laughs> he hit 101 a couple times. The other thing I was thinking about tonight that, you know, we're older now. We're both in our, I turned 52 last week. You're slightly older than I am. 
But we've seen so many games and been through so many seasons now that you start hitting these checkpoints and they either bring back good memories or bad memories, right? Like, so the Cole comes out, Holmes comes in, who I, I still think it's Clint Holmes, even though I've watched him and we had about our fantasy <laughs> team. <laughs> Holmes comes in and he looks great and he gets two double plays. And somebody who went on the text thread was like, oh my God, this is like 03 Messina. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah. now I'm back. Now it's game seven, 2003 again. I'm like, no, I don't want to be here. Stop yeah. it. But yeah, it did feel like the Messina thing. The good thing for us, Severino didn't totally have it. And then Luizaga was really laboring, but they, you know, there, there's a scenario of this game today where the Yankee relievers come in and they just don't give up, but we don't score again. Yeah. I mean, that's what, you know, watching go jumping around all weekend, uh, you know, the Rays kept getting like first and third, one out all game Sunday. And then one of those hundred mile an hour guys for the Yankees would just fan the, the batter and keep their season alive. And so I was thinking, you know, you got to assume you're going to get five from Cole and then, and then you're, you're dealing with, with Severino and Holmes. Um, and, and, and it, it's ironic when you're like the guy, I feel like we have the best shot off is Chapman. Right. <laughs> we can get to Chapman. But, well, Chad, Chad Green, I think, I think he was so overused. There was definitely some Quantrill Flash Gordon comparisons to the 04 inch. Look, everybody, it's now like, oh, everything else is gravy. That's fine. Everybody thinks Tampa's unstoppable. They're certainly the best team you and I saw this year. They would just come in. They do everything well. It's annoying to play them. It's like, hey, here's this 20-year-old. He's like the most gifted 20-year-old in the recent history of the league. So they just add him to the mix. They have they these pitchers. Their, they lose their six foot eight monster ace and immediately get better. Right. Like, any team loses their ace. It's just a backbreaking moment for a team. They're like, hey, no problem. We'll go get three more from the farm. They, they start all, out. Yeah, they start out slow. And in May, they're just like, hey, we're going to trade our closer. <laughs> we have 19 other guys who throw 99 miles an hour. We're just going to put those guys in. They do everything well. They're really smart. They're incredibly well managed. With all that said, the big thing with us this year over the course of the year, especially with the COVID thing, was we don't have a bullpen. Once Matt Barnes, hey, we should have dedicated this podcast to Matt Barnes, who died at the beginning of August. 2021 All-Star, Matt Barnes. Yeah, and then immediately was done. But And then it was like, can we get through August, September with this bullpen? But now, you look at the way Hauk pitched today. He was great. He was great a few times down the stretch. Whitlock's back. Robles, once again, I got to say, he makes me so nervous. I, we, we both, we both have zone. multiple Met fans in our lives who think it's hilarious that we're lying on Robles. Meanwhile, he just gets dudes out. Uh, Ryan Brazier, who came out of nowhere, I'd, I'd forgotten about him. He's been pretty good. So they can kind of patch together a semblance of a playoff bullpen. And then you have Vivaldi who looked as good as he oh looked God, all your day. So hung over from the duck poke parade we're having in the morning. because <laughs> yeah, our, We just won our world series. So I mean, these guys, no. what would they do if they, what would, what would people react to if they just had a parade tomorrow for no reason? <laughs> There'd be a huge turnout. First of all, <laughs> this is our bearing the Yankees duck poke parade. Um, <laughs> you know, we, of course we were, we, we needed to win out. Uh, and, and God bless Kevin Cash and the Tampa Bay Rays for trying to win every game in that series. You know, they had nothing to play for and, and they pushed the Yankees to the point where we got to play that game at Fenway. I mean, we really, uh, we, you know, when, when the Rays sweep us, we'll tip our caps to them uh, and thank them. But um, so 
we we have all three games in Washington are must wins. On Saturday, we don't have a pitcher. It's undecided. You know, moments, hours before the game, they don't know who's going to start. And then how goes out there and pitches five perfect innings. And of course, uh, on our text chains, people were greedy. Like people on our text chains were like sending back out. And yeah, I'm like, more. are you crazy? I was with Eck. Like you have gone so far beyond house money. Like you got five innings out of a guy who's been sent to the bullpen for a month. Like he hasn't started in a month. And and uh, and we got five innings out of him. And and so when he came in tonight, it was like, oh, my God, this guy's coming off 15 in a row dominant. Nobody's squaring the ball up. And then that inning tonight was filthy. Like he, he had like that- a real, real swagger to him tonight. Oh, my God. He's so relaxed physically. He's like yeah. he looks bored. He looks totally bored. Uh, so, yeah, he could be an X factor as I try to talk myself you know, into. Well, another think about the guys that we the the batters that we have. We have playoff bats. Yes. Schwarber, sure. you saw it today. Every Schwarber, Schwarber was unreal tonight. Even the one time he made it out, he, every pitch he took was a ball. Two of them were called strikes, and then he swung it at three and two. But he had unreal at bats for Dugo, um, Devers, Kike, even Plawecki. Like they have these random dudes that are in the right situation, doll back if it's a lefty or if it's a soft tosser. You go on down the line, it's like, you know, I, I'm talking myself into it, I guess well, is my point. Because when you, when we spend 48 hours going, which lineup, which lineup do you want? Because we have, we do have a lot of permutations to choose from, you know, and I was like, I wanted JD on the bench and whether it, Me whether too. Cora used the excuse of his ankle, when you play JD, it creates this domino effect because he, he's terrible defensively. So if you play him in the field, you're hurting your team in the field. If you DH him, then Schwarber can't DH, and he's a better hitter than JD at this point in the career in his career. And so then Schwarber is hurting you defensively wherever he plays. And wait, oh, so- hold on, Schwar- Schwarber's maiming you defensively. It's not. A, it's not a hurt. It's actually like you're you're well, maimed for the next month. Did you, you remember when they had that little run in the UCLA uniforms when he just had a pop up land in the middle of the infield <laughs> five feet behind him? I've never seen it. And then I was like, oh yeah. He's never played first base. He's never staggered under a pop-up in the yeah. infield. Um, but so the domino effect where you start moving guys around hurts us defensively everywhere. So we were like, even though Iglesias is not on the playoff roster, Arroyo in at second, PK in center, and Renfro in right and Doogie in left is definitely our best defensive team. It all meant JD Martinez shouldn't shouldn't play. And so I was very excited when I saw that lineup when we were texting it to each other. And then I looked at the Yankees lineup and like that LeMahieu injury, I know he didn't have a good year, but like with, with LeMahieu out and, you know, even uh, Voight not playing and then Sanchez sitting, like you're like, gosh. It tails off. Labor's batting fifth. And after that, as Eck would say, it's a bunch of lambs. You know, you've got Higgy and Velasquez back, you know, back to back at the bottom of the lineup and Gardner. I mean, I know you hate him, but he's like, he's not much of a hitter at this point in his career. So when I looked at those lineups this afternoon, to your point about our lineup, I was like, well, our bridge to, uh, to the last 12 outs, notwithstanding, we have a better team one through nine than that, that team that the Yankees put out there tonight. 
Yeah, I, I'm with you on DJ. I know he wasn't as good as this year as was last year, but I'm still scared of him when he's up, you know? And I think with the lineup, they basically had this three-bat gauntlet. I wasn't afraid of Gallo. Sorry, Yankee fans. So in a one game where you can do whatever you want with your pitching staff, you can really stack it so you can put the guys you want against that three-bat gauntlet. That's going to be tougher. One of the frustrating things against Tampa is, like last year, it was that guy, uh, Brusso. Is that well, how you pronounce our it? Friend, Mike yeah. Brasso. Mike Brasso, uh, yeah. So he's awesome in the playoffs. And Hench and I own an AL Keeper team together. And we're like, Brasso. Brusso. have him. Yeah, it was like this guy, he came into his own last year. I think he hit like 130 and was in the minors basically for the last four and a half months of the year. Um, but that's the race. And some this year it'll be another Brasso, Brusso. Broso, it'll be one other guy we've never heard of or we we don't aren't afraid of. I mean, every who goes fourteen for twenty. Every seam head, you know, basically, you know, the 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 computers have taken a little of the fun out of the game because it's like they're like, look, if you're eighth in the league in OPS, you're you're gonna be around eighth through ten in the league and run scored. And it's like, well, no, the Rays are in the middle of the pack in OPS and running away with run scored. Right now. How? Like, doesn't your on-base percentage or your slugging percentage has to be something? Like, no, here's what we do. Every time there's runners on second and third with two outs, one of these guys gets a hit. It's it's nuts. It is Yo, so and I think and the Giants are the worst, are the worst, even worst case scenario of that because they've been pulling even more shit out of there. Like I have Dodger fans who are like, we won 106 games and we have to do a one-game playoff. Like, we did everything right. This other team had the all-time hot blackjack table hot streak that anyone's ever had during a baseball season. And now we have a one-game playoff. They have a one-game playoff with Cowboy Joe West behind the plate. What a nightmare. It is insane that what Dodger fans are going to have to go through. I did, I texted you earlier that was like, because then I was thinking about uh, talking to a buddy about Sonny McLean's and when the Red Sox won in 2004. And I was remembering meeting Dave Roberts and Gabe Kapler with mm. the trophy, they almost like treated it like the Stanley Cup. Like I felt like those guys got a weekend with the trophy. And so we were at Sonny McLean's and they and they were such nice guys and like young like us and uh and and really like just friendly and like so psyched that they were part of this team. And then I just it just occurred to me, I was like, oh yeah, Dave Kapler and Dave Roberts, they just won 213 games combined in the same baseball season. Like <laughs> It's it's a it's a managerial anomaly. Like, hey, you guys won 106 games. Well, what'd you win the division by? 17 games? No, we lost. We lost. <laughs> right. I gotta we say, I like the right rule. Right. I like the rule just because it reminds me of what we grew up with, especially in '78, ironically, where it's like they were the two best teams in the American League, but the rules back then were you gotta win your division. And somebody's gotta go home, and that's just the way it is. At least in this case, there's real value to winning the division still. And you know, you can still control your own destiny and you can stack your team in one game and you should win it. The Dodgers should win tomorrow night. I have said a hundred times since July, the Dodgers are winning that division between five and 10 games. Like it is not, Buster Posey is the only guy who can start for the Dodgers and Will Smith's good, by the way. Like the Dodgers are so loaded uh, and that the Trey Turner fleecing, I mean, in addition to Scherzer, like, I didn't realize Trey Turner had 27 home runs. Like, I was like, oh, that, that, guy's, trade was... that guy's just a superstar. Well, I'll, le- 
I'll leave you with this because we got to go. I haven't forgiven them for the Mookie Betts trade, but I've come to terms with it. I, I have really loved this Red Sox team. Last year, I basically had to take off emotionally. I watched as little Red Sox as I've ever watched in my whole life. And then you think like today, Verdugo was one of the guys that got the big hit. He's not Mookie Betts. They never should have traded Mookie Betts. I'll never forgive them for it. But it's nice that at least one of the guys we got is a real guy. And then they get Kike, who wasn't in that trade, but feels like he's got a little Dodgers DNA, at least. And those were two guys that the Dodger fans really liked. So I, well, I'm going to end it on a positive. Let me ask you this, because I want to give some love to Doogie, who seems oddly clutch. Um, who was it? Was it Pete Myers or Dennis Hobson? Who, who, who did the Bulls say, like, no problem? No problem. We've got... <laughs> Was it Dennis Hobson or? Yeah, I think it was Pete Myers. Pete Myers. Yeah. Like we got Pete Myers. Everyone should relax because we got Pete Myers. And I really do feel like, you know, Verdugo carries this weight of like, you have you know, like maybe the greatest right fielder in baseball history, defensively, MVP, most beloved member of the community. Like you are stepping into shoes. Like it is, it could, you could crash. Like if you're like, oh, this is the guy we got for Mookie Betts. And he's just done nothing but deliver. Um, very solid season. Huge hit uh, against the Nationals on Sunday. Obviously a huge hit tonight to kind of really let us exhale. Also an incredible chemistry guy. Great energy. I love the stuff with him and Ortiz. Like was a real Red Sox fan. Like really loved and appreciated being on the team. And I, it's really hard not to not to like him. So yeah, we're, that's where the point we're at with the movie I mean, trade. At this point... We could be playing deeper into October than the Dodgers. It's it's insane to contemplate. Oh my God. I yeah, that's unbelievable. Well, Hench, hopefully you'll come back on later in October if we keep winning. I, I'm I'm weirdly optimistic. <laughs> Today, I'm, so I'm really happy. Season. I'm so happy about the season. I feel like all the work we put into it, the way too many games and texts we sent paid off tonight. It was all worth it for this, for this three and a half hours of pure glory. And... And, and we got to keep the championship belt of each other. It's staying in Boston. All right, Kevin Hench, good to see Great you. Talking to you. Thanks, buddy. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is already stressful enough to deal with airports, delayed flights, bad weather. You want your actual where you're staying experience to be perfect, to be lights out. You don't want to have to worry about anything. When you book a vacation rental, you want to know exactly what you're paying ahead of time. The stress of getting hit with unexpected cleaning fees after your stay. That can immediately cancel out all the great time you just spent unwinding. Thankfully, when you book with Verbo, you can see the total price upfront. There are no unpleasant surprises and the savings do not stop there, my friends. When you book with Verbo, you earn 2% cash back toward your next vacation through the One Key Rewards program, letting your money do the work for you while you've got your feet up. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your next private vacation rental in the Verbo app. This episode is brought to you by Taco Bell. If you're anything like me during a busy day at work, I need lunch that is just as fresh as it is delicious and easy. And the all new Cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell is exactly that. Made with high quality ingredients like seasoned slow roasted chicken, pico de gallo, shredded purple cabbage, and avocado verde salsa sauce. The new. Cantina chicken tacos, burrito, and quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina chicken menu at Taco Bell now. All right, our guy Jonathan Charks is here from The Ringer. 
and the Ringer Podcast Network and theringer.com. Good to see you. How are you feeling these days? People want to know. I'm feeling good. I'm taking a break from treatment right now, just kind of relaxing, getting ready for the NBA season. Yeah, you've written some pieces. I, I have you on to talk about Dallas because I think Dallas is the most interesting West team right now to kind of discuss from a ceiling basement standpoint. But before we do that, con- we're contractually obligated to talk about Ben Simmons for one minute. Um, <laughs> ben Simmons, they're, the, the stuff that's come out, especially in the Philly Inquirer the last couple of days, has talked about like the mental stress of the situation in the last year on Ben that's coming from the clutch side. So now they're playing that angle that his head's just never going to be right if he plays for you guys. You should trade him. They're looking at every single way to trade him, yet there's no trade. He's holding out. The season, we're now less than three months away. Um, doesn't three seem weeks like he's, away. Yeah, three, less than three weeks away. Sorry. Doesn't seem like he's getting traded. Are you a he's undervalued, overvalued, or properly valued guy at this point right now? I think he could be better than what he is in Philly in a different role. I, I do believe that. I do believe if I was a team, I'd be interested in trading for him given in a different role. I think he could be better than what he is now for sure. So would you be more interested trading for him if you were a shitty team, a mediocre team, or a good team? Well, like where does Portland fall in that mix? Portland, I think, is a good team. Okay, I would trade for him if I was Portland. I would trade CJ and whatever they wanted, if that was even doable. Something like that, I'd do it in a second. Yeah, it was because we're going to do the big, me, House, and Marcillo are doing the big over-under podcast next week. Very excited about it, but doing a lot of homework. And the Portland over-under was 44 and a half. They were 30 to 1 to win the conference and 80 to 1 to win the title. And I was looking at their team, and when you add Larry Nance to it, and you think like, all right, at crunch time, I can kind of see this team, right? I could see Covington. Wait, they have the ability to go a little smaller, right? They can do Covington and Nance, Norm Powell, McCollum and Dame. And it's like, all right, that's actually five guys that I think could play together. If the other team is a center, you could play Nurkic. And now if you're going to remove McCollum from that, you're going to put Simmons in there. To me, that's riskier than what they have. I don't know if I would do that with what we don't know about Ben Simmons. Does he like basketball? What happened to him last year? Was it just because of the trade? Is there more to it? Why hasn't he gotten better in four years? I'm not positive I would want to mess it up if I was Portland, but it seems like you would. I guess so. I just don't believe in Damon CJ. And then you're adding Norm Powell. So now you're going 6'2", 6'2", 6'4". I'm a big believer in perimeter length, perimeter size. I think those guys are just too small to really go on a run in the West. And you know Dame is still... He's happy for now, but I think... That's the kind of seismic move that maybe it might buy me two more years with Dame. Because like, okay, this is an all-star. Let's rebuild around these two guys. We have some like future. Whereas I think if, if him and CJ lose again in round one or round two, it'll be like, okay, we've done this 10 billion times. It's never going to work. Right. But I guess my fear with Simmons would be, what if Dame within a week realizes like, oh my God, this guy. And now, now you have to move on Dame almost immediately after, you know, like if Dame's out on that move, it will, there might be a grace period of, I don't know how many months, but you're right. Like, look on paper, if you had Simmons, Covington and Larry Nance all out there together with Dame and another shooter, whether it's Powell or whoever else, 
defensively, they'd be pretty interesting. With the, like, I think Simmons is one of the two or three best defensive players in the league. Now mm-hmm. that Kawhi's out, he might be two behind Giannis if he's trying. And um, I don't know. That's that's something, I guess. But I just think the baggage that he brings in and that fan base too, that's like this hyper fan base of they only have the one team there. Every you think, If he thinks Philly's tough, where do he get to Portland? Portland is oh, the all-time sink or swim city. If I'm Neil Olshay, like I read these articles, he's probably thinking I'm going to get fired at the end of the season. Like maybe it's time for me to... When's he made an aggressive move? He's always played it very conservatively. You know, like we'll build through the... He's always been a big build the draft guy. Doom, doom, doom. We'll add a one free agent. Like when was their big splash? It was trading for Norman Powell. It's not really a big splash. Like if I'm Olshay, it's time to make a move, I think. Yeah, he's done the medium-sized splash. And you're right. The one big move GM is always the biggest threat to a franchise other than relocation. It's true. Because if you're the fan base, all right, does the move, he gets fired, he just goes to his next job. But the fan base is still suck, stuck with the wreckage of of the move. And they're like, well, wait a second. So he's gone, but we're still stuck with that terrible trade he made? I can't wait to, to see how it plays out. Well, with the Simmons thing, I personally think the best thing for him would be a shitty team. Like if he went to, I don't think it's even possible with the salary cap, but like Houston, if he went there and he just had all these young toys around him and he was the man and just could be the kind of facilitator guy with the ball in his hands all the time. But also the team wasn't winning that much. There wasn't a pressure of, hey, look at our record. Oh, we're 35 and 47. It's like, yeah, but we have a young team and Ben's getting these reps. That's like the best no pressure thing for him. The worst pressure thing would be to, he went to like Golden State. And yeah, which I'm not convinced that they would go near unless, you know, ironically, unless Draymond was in the deal somehow in a three way. Um, I just don't think you could play Simmons and Draymond together. All right. Enough foreplay. Um, <laughs> let's get to the maps. Couple things with the maps. Luca easily on Fando has the best MVP odds. That's been the case the whole, the whole year, right? Uh, of the whole offseason. Their over-under is 48 and a half. It's pretty high. Mm -hmm. Vegas is saying 49 and 33 will be a half point over. 49 and 33 in the West isn't nothing. For the title, they're only 30 to one. So again, I mentioned Portland was 80 to one. For the conference, they're 60 to one. And they're in a crap division. Right now, they're minus 210 to win that division. But the teams in that division, they have Memphis, who I think would be their biggest threat. Um... New Orleans, who's a mess. Talk about GMs who are on the hot seat. San Antonio, don't know what to make of them. And then Houston. So we know they're, that unless Luka gets hurt, Dallas is winning the division. We also know they got better. I think Bullock is just an improvement over Jason Richardson. The one thing he can do is the thing they really need from that spot, which is somebody who can hit an open shot. And they have the healthy Dwight Powell, who they didn't have last year for most of the year. And then they have Porzingis, who, look, it's preseason. We're used to reading these stories. Everybody looks great. Everybody's never been in better shape. Everybody's never been happier. I get it. But it didn't look like he was right last year. Every story I'm reading is this guy is actually physically right this year. He's way better. And they had the Kid Carlisle thing. I'm optimistic on the 48 and a half. I think I'm, I'm, next week I'm probably going to go over. And I think they're kind of stealth because Luca have to be at least not in the conversation, but at least adjacent to the conversation of what might happen 
with uh, with the title of something weird happens with the Lakers. There's this next group of teams, and it's like, all right, well, if Luca's the best player in the league next year, they have to at least be mentioned in a title conversation. Is it crazy to think that if something crazy happens with the Lakers, that there's a path for them if a weird Phoenix 2020 type situation happens, that there's a path for this Dallas team? I don't think so. I think you're right. Bringing in Reggie Bullock and to a lesser degree, Sterling Brown. I mean, last year, Richardson really, really hurt the team. That was like the big, they traded for him and then he just couldn't shoot. By the end of the playoffs, he wasn't even in the rotation. So that he went from like, this guy's going to be our starting two guard playing 30 minutes a night to we just can't even play you at all. So I think that's a massive upgrade just because the Mavs have never had a ton of 3 and D guys. They either have guys like Tim Hardaway who are good shooters and can't defend or Richardson who couldn't, who could defend but couldn't shoot. So now you have, especially in the backcourt, you have Bullock and Brown. And I think what gets forgotten is just how great Kawhi was in that first round last year. Like, Kawhi in game six, I was at the game and it was incredible. He had 45 points and he guarded Luka for a big most of the game. He had to dig all the way in the bottom of his bag to give you an all-time great performance for Luke to beat Luka pretty much while Luka had nothing around him. And it's like, I look at the West, I don't see really many Kawhi Leonard's out there. You know, like I'm, that's the one guy you're scared of in a playoff series. In the West. I think Kawhi Leonard, Anthony Davis... Everybody else is beatable in my mind. Yeah, that was their kryptonite team and we knew it. And that was why the Clippers wanted to play them, which seemed like the worst idea in the world after two games, but then it worked out. And if Kawhi wasn't on them, they could throw Paul George at him too. They could throw Morris at him. Paul George isn't the same defender he was five years ago, but he's still above average. Morris is above average. And they just, they could at least make Luca work for his points. And as you said, when there's no shooters that you're really concerned about. And then you have the weird Porzingis piece of it. Now, they've said some weird stuff with Porzingis, like Jason Kidd saying, we want to use him as a forward. I don't even know how to interpret that. I tried to put it through my weird basketball, like, all right, take the weirdest things you've heard this week and put it through some translator, <laughs> try to understand it. Porzingis is a center, he's seven foot three. I don't understand the even concept of him being as a forward. What do you think Kid was even trying to say with that? Well, because they're going to start Dwight Powell as a role man. So that means KP will have to spot up off Dwight Powell when they're playing together. Because Dwight Powell only can only do is catch lobs. I don't think they'll close games like that. But I think for like 10 minutes a game, he'll be spotting up off Dwight Powell. I think that's what that means. But how is that different than what he did last year? Last year, he was just spotting up off everybody. Like when I think uh, of a forward, I think of somebody who... You know, it's like a Jason Tatum. Like you throw him the ball on the right <laughs> side and it's like ISO time, clear out. Or somebody who can like, you're running a pick and roll where they're the ones who have the ball. You can't do that with Porzingis. I don't, I don't think there's any other way to use him unless I'm missing something. Well, I, I think what's kids getting at, I think it's like, we're going to give him a few bones just in the low post. You can jack up your 18 foot fadeaway. We, cause Carlisle was like, that is not efficient. We're not doing it get in line in the corner. I think Kid is I think Kid is going to give him a few shots and say this will hurt our offensive efficiency. But by giving this man a few shots, maybe he'll try hard run. I mean, maybe he'll try hard run defense. It's the classic big man, right? We're going to throw this big man a few bones and if it hurts our stats, it hurts our stats. 
we need his energy on defense. I say this out of love and respect for Kendrick Perkins, 2008 Celtics champion. <laughs> I enjoy his media work. Don't come at me, Kendrick Perkins. I enjoy you on Twitter. I'm a fan. Um, this was a strategy the Celtics and OKC used to use with Kendrick Perkins in the first six to eight minutes of first quarters, right? They'd run a couple plays for him so that he felt like he was involved in the game. And then what you really wanted was the defense and the rebounding. So what you're saying is they're doing the Perkins strategy where in the first quarter, <laughs> everyone's going to stand around. They'll run like a couple plays for Porzingis, which will probably, based on the numbers we saw the last couple of years, will be pretty horrible. I mean, his low post mid-range stuff was pretty bad and he never figured out that foul line dirt game, which to me is like, if he wants to grow as a player, the foul line dirt game would be the way to grow. But that's, he seems to think he should be doing drop steps like Embiid. And we've just never seen him do that. Now, he is saying all the right things and it is clear he wasn't in shape last year and it is clear he is in shape this year. And the guy was really good on the Knicks, you know, and he's only 25 and the, I guess the question is, has there been too many injuries? You know, like what we saw with Blake Griffin where somebody can just have too many injuries and then they're a different player. I don't, he seems too young to just write him off. I'm not writing him off yet. I mean, it, it's sad it's come to the Perkins. <laughs> right. It's, it's sad it's come to that. But I think if you look back, I'm looking back at his stats right now in the Knicks. He wasn't very efficient ever in New York. He just took a lot of shots. Yep. I think in his mind, I was like, well, let me take some shots. And if I'm not efficient, who cares? I want to shoot anyways. And that's just how it's going to have to be, I guess. It's funny. In the early days of the internet with basketball, when nobody knew what they were talking about and nobody barely watched anything, there were these guys who were like good fantasy guys who took a lot of shots and we didn't understand the concept of volume. We just looked at points, rebounds, and assists. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like, if Anton Walker was averaging 25 points a game, he'd be like, wow, that guy's really good. And you didn't look at, like, he's shooting 40%. He's taking 22 field goal attempts a game. He doesn't get free throws. There were no kind of, there was no advanced conversation at all. At all. And you're right, like, with the Porzingis thing. Yeah, he had a really high usage rate on the Knicks. And as we've discussed in this pod a million times, there's a lot of players who can get to 20 points a game if you give them shots, like we saw with Jeremy Grant last year. I think the difference with Porzingis, right, that year when he got hurt, it really did seem like he was turning into a genuine impact offensive player. Like he was kind of unstoppable. And he, and what it was similar to Dirk where he could face up or he, it seemed like he could get points around the basket. The face up stuff we haven't seen with him, at least in this iteration with Dallas. He just, it seems like his lower body is too stiff, but maybe, maybe that'll change. I, I guess I don't know where it goes with him but it can't be worse than what we saw last year. Because mm -hmm. Carlisle yeah, was out. Carlisle was like, I'm out on this guy. I'm not even going to try to make this work anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, I think too with the Knicks, there was never any expectations, right? When he was at the Knicks, Mello was getting older. The team didn't win anything. Even when he was like getting his points, it was kind of like, well, KP's going to shoot. We're going to lose 50 games anyways. Now right. there's actual expectations. And I think he did kind of get trapped with the Clippers series because... Like, he's a kind of an immobile big man. And they made Gobert look pretty bad, too. Like, they go so small. There isn't much KP can do. And that goes back to him being not as healthy. But it's just, it is hard to ever think he'll get back to where he was. But I think in his mind, he's thinking, if I can get my shots, I'll get more in a rhythm. And if I get more in a rhythm, I'll be more comfortable. 
And it seems like the Mavs are going to indulge him for that for a while. The question is, how long will that continue, right? How long will they let him just give him this rope to do this? Well, we talked about the Clippers, I think, are out this year. I don't think we see Kawhi this year. And if we see him, who knows if he'll play, be able to play every game in a series or any of that stuff. And that was the team they were the most afraid of. You go through the West of the Western contenders, they're all teams that Porzingis can play against. They Let's say they play the Lakers in a series. You can play Porzingis in a Lakers series. They're going to have multiple big guys. They're not going to go small. He's going to have at least a body to stand next to. Um, Phoenix, same thing. They're going to play Aiton. And you go on down the line, it's like the Clippers really were the only team that were kind of a disaster matchup for him. Now, you might be able to argue Portland might not be the greatest with Covington and Nance if they went smaller and just tried to pull them away on pick and rolls and things like that. But um, I think the league shifted in his favor a little bit. But I mean, the real reason we're having this conversation is Luca, because, and I made this point before, but the history of the league says when the guy has that last level breakout, he usually pulls the team with him, you know, and, and whether he's going to be one of the best offensive players of our lifetime, hard to say. But if you're going to compare him just from what he's accomplished the first few years of his career versus the other guys, he's ahead of them. He's ahead of Jordan at the same age. He's ahead of LeBron at the same age. He's shit on par with Oscar Robertson at the same age when Oscar Robertson, you know, the stats were totally out of whack in the sixties. Um, all of those guys were able to pull a team up to a finals sooner than we expected or close to the precipice of the finals. You know, it was like, wow, this is happening now. I didn't realize I had this in my calendar for two years from now. And they're so good that it just kind of happened. I do think the West is lined up this year for a weird team like that. Now, I think Phoenix is actually a better chance to be the, I can't believe they made the finals team, even though that already happened. I think people are sleeping on them again, which is great for them. But, you know, is it inconceivable that Luca could pull a team through a couple rounds here? I don't think so. I think he's, you've seen, you've gone to way more of his games in person than I have. I, I think he's a generational talent. So I don't think we can write him off, is my point. I think for sure. It, to go back to our earlier conversation, the only player I'm really scared about in the West is Anthony Davis. Like, I don't, like, KP is, like, going to be guarding him. I think that can go very poorly for Dallas, like as poorly as you can imagine. <laughs> Everyone else, yeah, I'll take my chances with Luca and some defenders around him because there's been this whole thing this offseason about, oh, Luca needs a secondary playmaker. Luca needs to give up the ball a little more. I mean, Kid even said that in his press conference on Media Day. And I think there's some truth to that. I don't think Luca thinks that really. I don't think Luca's like, oh, yeah. I need some help. I think Luca's like, I'm about to score 35 points a game and get triple doubles every single night. And I, I think he's more than capable of doing that. And I think not that Dallas really necessarily planned it this way, but it's probably for the best the team is set up so that Luca can just dominate the ball the entire game. I mean, kind of like, remember Slovenia in the Olympics? I think he liked that, where he was like going for 40 Me every too. single night. I think he was totally cool with it. I think that's how he wants to play. I think part of the reason they were doing it the way they're doing it in Dallas was who else was going to fucking score? You have to get to 110 points. Also, it was really efficient in the regular season. That was the other piece. Like, they were kind of, if you just look at the stats, like borderline dominant offensively for some stretches. So it's hard to say they were doing the wrong thing. I also think with Dallas, when you're just thinking about them as a potential contender, there's buyout possibilities with them. 
and we see this every year in in these teams we always forget especially with the contenders and the and the close to being a contender contenders like once we get to January February there's going to be guys that pop up the nets have a ton of holes and then all of a sudden they get LaMarcus Aldridge Blake Griffin they start adding guys and they look like a different team what's interesting about this year is a lot of the teams that would be the buyout the usual buyout suspects right Brooklyn the Lakers those teams are pretty stacked from a roster standpoint they they kind of built their team in the offseason. Dallas is a team that can add a couple pieces and or make a couple trades. And I keep looking at Dragic in Toronto, and I know they've said all the right things, but Dragic, he's got the Slovenian thing with Luka. Um, I think Luka considers him to be a mentor from everything I've seen. They have a hole for him. He's on a Toronto team that, um, you know, the over-unders would certainly suggest that people think this is not a playoff team and it's a transition year for them. Um, if you saw Precious destroying Andre Drummond on Twitter last night, maybe, maybe it'll happen sooner if Precious <laughs> turns into LeBron. But I think there's a way, the, the big spots for them to improve would be that Powell spot. And, you know, basically the, the Brunson was okay last year. It was a little, I just wasn't good in the playoffs, but that Brunson yeah. spot would be the other one. Could you get a better version of Brunson? And could you get a better version of Dwight Powell or somebody who could take some of their minutes? And Dallas is a candidate for that. They have, they finally have kind of a malleable roster. You know what I mean? For mm -hmm. years, they were stuck with that Porzingis trade and not being able to really move pieces. But now it seems like there's at least a little flexibility. I think we have to talk about Kid for a second. I'm a little yep. dubious. That's the thing I'm most concerned about. And we're talking about expectations. I think Kid is on the hot seat right away. Like, if Ooh. they're bad this year, like they're not going to wait until we're on for Jason Kidd, I don't think. If the team loses in the first round, the, the pressure on him will be really, really high immediately. So we'll see how he does because there's a lot of expectations and a lot of pressure on him. Yeah, it's, and we have no idea if he's a good coach. Now, the Milwaukee stuff, Mir and Fader's book, the kid, some of the kid stuff was a little eye-opening. Yeah. <laughs> Where like really strange, bizarre things and it was clear that he needed to leave. Goes to the Lakers by all accounts, really respected as as a right-hand guy for Vogel, especially when you think like when he got there, everybody was like, oh my God, watch out, watch your back, Frank Vogel. But everybody seems to agree he was a valuable guy and really helped them in a bunch of different ways. I don't mind second job head coaching guys. Unfortunately, he's a third job coaching guy. I was going to say, yeah. So yeah. Number three. So that's where it gets, <laughs> that's where it gets a little dicier where you start thinking, well, he's, who are, who are the best third job guys we've had? I get it's like that's when you get into like Doc Rivers on the Clippers and Oof. things like that. You kind of are who you are as a coach. Maybe he learned some stuff. I don't know. But you're right. I think the hot seat thing with GMs and coaches has gone to a whole other level because it's really the only way you can fix your team with, you know, there's 25 guys in the league that matters, that matter. Um, it's so hard to land superstars. And now the tanking strategy even becomes dicey because. You can tank and then, or you can clear out cap space and then there's no free agents for the cap space. So it's like, you really need somebody who can maneuver this stuff or you really need a coach who can overachieve with your roster. And also like there's a priority now for ex-players, which makes it even harder to find those guys. So um, yeah, you're right. I think could Cuban move after a year if this doesn't work? We've seen him make drastic moves like that. We've also seen him be insanely loyal to people for way too long. Like Donnie Nelson, what do you think he over, I mean, 
four or five years longer than it should have yeah. lasted. Carlisle didn't make years. the playoffs for 10 years. And I think until Carlisle stepped down, they probably would come back for year 11. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where it goes, but I, I think, think it, my guess would be though, like those, these last 10 years, there's been no expectations. Dirk was old. The team was not going anywhere. Now though, Luca's the clock is ticking with Luca. I think Cuban will feel it too. I think everyone in Dallas now feels like, you know, it's always, it's in the NBA, right? You have a superstar player. The pressure just goes up every season. Like it's just is what it is. Is this the most interesting West team to you heading into this season? Looking at or the is list. there another team that you're... Because to me, it's between Dallas and Golden State for that first two weeks. I just want to see it. I want to see if Golden State, if Jordan Poole's better this year, which I think he's... I think people are realizing he's a huge X factor for them because if he could turn into a legitimate six-man when Clay comes back, that's something they haven't really had ever. They've had good benches, but they haven't had you know, somebody that can come in and really swing a game off the bench like that. And then if they get anything from those young guys and then the clay piece of it, how healthy is he going to look? The wise man, what's he going to look like? I think Golden State's the most fascinating team for me in the West, but I think I have Dallas second. Yeah, I, the one, other time I put in that conversation is Denver. I just want to watch Michael Porter this season. I think he's kind of this massive X factor hanging over the team and the league is if he can keep getting better. He had a great year without Murray. He wasn't as great in the playoffs. Now he had the whole offseason to presumably work on his game, get a little more of a handle, have the offense run through him more. I mean, Michael Porter is the guy who, if Denver has like a top two seed this season, which is possible, it's because Michael Porter elevated his game. And he obviously has the potential. So that's the other guy I'm watching really closely to start the season is him. Yeah, he's a good ceiling basement guy because there's also a world in which he tries to fill that Murray void. He got the extension and it's kind of like, hey, it's Michael Porter time. And it's like, settle down. This is Jokic's team. Um, you're not there yet, buddy. I could see that going that way too. I don't know. I don't know what to expect. Also, I don't know what to expect from him health-wise. I know he's been healthy the last two years, but he had a really serious back injury and now you're putting more miles on him during the season, coming off two condensed seasons. So can he have the durability? that they're going to need from him. Because that's another think, piece. Once you hit that top 20, top 30, top 40, wherever you are level, the durability becomes one of the components. I think for him, if you're Porter, it's like I'm planting my flag before Jamal gets back, right? Because when he got there, it's Nicola and Jamal's team. I'm just spotting up, getting a couple shots up. Y'all do y'all are the main two guys. Now Jamal's gone. It's like, all right, I want to be an all-star too. Like let, let, when he comes back, let it be a different team than he came back to. I think that's what is in his mind. What rookie are the are you the most excited for? I mean, I've I've been a Mobley guy from the beginning. I absolutely love him. I'm not sure about his role in Cleveland. I wrote about that today at the Ringer. I think Cleveland's in a tough position because they've been bad for so long that they're going to be like, we got. I wonder about um, Altman and Bickerstaff if they're under pressure to win. I think Mobley's the best rookie, but I do wonder if they're just not going to play him a lot right away to go for like the ten seed. That'd be my question. You and I have beachfront property on Mobley Let's Island. Go. We we have two three decker houses right next to each other and we're just gonna enjoy it. I'm with you. You know how much I love Mobley. Even like the brief summer league stuff we were able to see from him. It's a long term investment though. You gotta buy and hold. Like they're gonna be coming at you hard this first year. You just gotta buy and hold that investment. But we talked about the kind of super interesting teams, right? For me, the Cavs are one of those teams in the East. Like, 
they have all this talent I just like. I have no idea if they make sense together. But when you go through their roster, um, Garland, it was interesting to see Curry come out the way he did for Garland because that's always been a big thing for me when the when the stars kind of mm-hmm. call out the young guys because the stars see it. Durant did it when we did a pod once and Booker was like 19 and Durant's like, Booker's got it. It's like, really, Booker? It's like, yeah, he's got it. So Curry, to for him to come out for Garland like that made me rethink my whole, all my Garland thoughts, which I really didn't have any. But you have him, you have the Love and Jared Allen playing together. Rubio, could could he be a little bit of a glue guy getting people with the ball in the right spots? And then, I listen, I also own a shack on Mark, Marketed Island. We don't have electricity. <laughs> there's no toilets. We have to go to the bathroom outside. But I do own property there. So I am monitoring Marketed Island as well. Yeah, I think they, I think marketing means Kevin Love just not going to play. It'd be my guess. There were just, if you want to be around here, you don't want to buy out, you can just sit on the bench. Uh, I think for Cleveland, it's just a matter of, are we going to go with Garland Sexton again? Or has that, because I think Garland is the point guard, but then it's like now Sexton's the two guard. Now you got two six foot one guys and you have like the worst defense in the league. Doesn't make sense. There's probably a direct correlation to that. So, like, that's the thing with Cleveland from the jump is if Garland's your guy, You've got to give him a bigger two guard or next to him to go back. Like I just don't believe in having two smaller guards together. I think that's always going like, to limit your ceiling of your team. It's like when Cleveland they did the same thing with Kyrie and Deion Waiter, Waiters way back when. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like these guys work. aren't don't make sense together. Um, I, here's how the Kevin Love thing goes. I think they already talked to him, and I think they said, "Look, dude, we really want to trade for Ben Simmons. We have no idea if this is going to happen." But the longer this drags on, we might actually have a chance and we need your contract for the trade. You're not going to play this year. We're going to be playing Mobley. We're going to be playing marketing. You really have no future here. Um, we're not talking about a buyout yet until we see if we can trade Ben Simmons or not. And once that ship sails, we can talk. But you're not playing for us. Don't expect, you know, you might get eight minutes here, 10 minutes there. But it's mostly at this point, it's a staring contest because he makes t- way too much money. It makes no sense on this team. But, you know, it's like the Blake thing where at some point, if he gets bought out, he now becomes kind of an asset on the bio market. If he's somebody that can just come in on the right team and play 20 minutes a game, he's going to be effective. I think some other other people are just out completely on him. They're the league's passed him by. It's over. I would think he'd go to L.A. They could probably, I mean, they're playing DeAndre Jordan in the rotation. They obviously have nothing to lose. They can, <laughs> right. the bar's pretty low to clear if he's playing. L.A.'s right. Hey, people think you're washed up, right? Come here. We got a place for you. <laughs> they got a lot of those guys like that. around. That's for sure. All right. So you have a Cleveland piece that's up today, right? In the ringer? Yeah. All right. And a couple more NBA preview pieces. It's always good to see your face, Sharks. We'll see you on the uh, Ringer NBA show as well this year, too, I know. Yeah. All, All right. right. Thanks for having me on. Good to see you. This episode is brought to you by Brooks. Look, every athlete knows that whether you're hitting the field, the track, or even the tarmac, you need the right shoes. And the Brooks Go 16 comes close to perfect, letting you focus on the fun of running. They've got this nitrogen-infused cushioning that keeps your run nice and soft while still being lightweight enough if you want to pick up some speed. For the comfort seekers, you know, like me, you've seen my walk and talks on my YouTube channel. They've got a fresh new midsole design and crash pad to keep your joy ride feeling breezy. Plus, it's got an enhanced upper to give you the right amount of stretch and structure. Sneakers, running shoes, walking shoes, it's so important. 
Turn those everyday miles into everyday endorphins in the better than ever Brooks Ghost 16. So great shoes. Click or tap the banner to learn more. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Unlike this podcast, some things in life should be boring, like banking, because boring is pragmatic and responsible, level-headed, wise, all the things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be exciting. Exciting is for three-point buzzer beaters, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money because when your money is doing what you need it to, you can do all the unboring things you want to do with it. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc., PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. All right, I know I always say this. This guy was supposed to come on. This lady was supposed to come on. Wanted this person on for years. This is the all-time example of that. I've been badgering Michael Keaton, I think since 2014, Birdman. I went to a Birdman screening. You were going to come on. You didn't understand what a podcast was. I was explaining it to you. I've run into you a bunch of times. Every time you feel bad, you're like, no, no, I'm going to come on. And now it's 2021. Here we are yeah. finally. We did we're it. We're doing a podcast. I'm so happy yeah. to see you. This is Me great. Me too. Me too. By the way, I didn't feel that bad at all. Well, I was, I was, I was embellishing. I was, <laughs> I was building it up. Um, we should mention you have Dope Sick coming out on Hulu. Right. You have Worth that's already on Netflix. But right. we're go we're going backwards. Look, you've okay. done you've done a million interviews over the years. Yeah. You've told the story about why you didn't do the third Batman a hundred times. You, yeah, I feel like you've done all of it. I want yeah. to go back to the '80s with you because okay. you're one of my guys. You know, I'm 13 when Night Shift comes out. I'm 13 right. when you start going on Letterman. Yeah. And you become one of my guys. Yeah. But what, right. I didn't know the backstory of it took you a while to get there. You, you're you on TV shows. You're on like Mary Tyler Moore Hour. You're yeah. doing stand-up. Can we go back to the late 70s as you're trying to break in during this crazy time when there's only really three TV networks and right. they're making 100 movies a year? Right. And you're trying to break in. What do you remember all these years later about that? That's funny. I was thinking that the other day when people, when people used to say, you know, if I was in my house with my mom and dad or whatever you'd say, everything was on channel, no matter where you were. Yeah, there, he's on channel four. <laughs> right. matter, you know? <laughs> and that was it. Because that was the network. Yeah. Yeah, I watched that show on channel four. Um, so what I remember, you know, which is a fair amount, thank God. Um, I'm not that far. Well, let me see. I'm downtown. I'm in New York right now. I'm trying to think of where the first place. I used to leave Pittsburgh in my 65 bug. I might have hitchhiked one time. I took a bus. I can't remember. And I would. Uh, I was getting ready to make my move here because I was, you know, I was working different jobs in Pittsburgh, and I was starting to write a little. And I did a. I was doing some plays, and I and I actually started doing a little stand up because uh, I was writing. I got really interested in writing comedy and then I, a guy told me about a jazz club. So, so I was doing that, but then I thought, well, I'm going to New York. I've decided to move to New York. Um, and uh, so I would start to do auditions and I'd come all the way back and uh, a friend of mine used to let me crash uh, uh, right, uh, right like 10 blocks from here, uh, a three, three story walk up. Uh, and I would, set up an audition or something and go see these people out of the blue. And then I'd have to drive my car. Like I woke up one morning right over here and I kind of looked out the window and I went, gee, I'm looking out the other side and the, the apartment was this big. And, and I said, 
almost positive I parked right down there. It was gone. My car was towed. <laughs> so every dollar I had went to getting it back, which was about at that time about 75 bucks. So I was doing that and uh, and working at WQED in Pittsburgh just as a grip kind of kind of all-around guy, what you did. You just did all kinds of things. <clears throat> and um worked Fred, on Fred Rogers' show sometimes and did other and uh, there was a guy there, a very funny guy named Charlie Howe, who had written some stuff that was funny. And somebody had seen his stuff. And, and the guy was coming through Pittsburgh and recommended him to, to a show out in, uh, in L.A. And he got, and he got it. Uh, he got this job. And he, all of a sudden, he was a comedy writer for Norman Lear. So Charlie, I, I had sold him a couple of jokes. And he and I became friends. Really good guy. And he... Geez, I don't know. We didn't email, so I guess he he wrote me a note or called me or something, and he said, "You going to New York?" And I go, "Yeah, I'm getting ready here in about a month or something." And he goes, "What? You should come out to L.A. Give L.A. a try." Because the expression he used that stuck in my head was, "It's wide open out here," and I thought, "Wide open." And my friend I've known since I'm about nine was going to law school out there, and uh, yeah, literally I've known him since I think we're like ten. Uh, and, and, and he, and I, he let me stay with him for a while. He was back in Pittsburgh working for the summer and I stayed in his place with his brother and a bunch of guys. And, um, uh, but I just never left. And I started, and I was doing everything, you know, doing anything you could do, parking cars, you know, trying to figure it out, figure it out. I didn't even know how, how you went about it, except that I would go visit Charlie occasionally, but there's not he, anything he could do really, you know, I didn't have it. So. Uh, I'd start working in clubs among doing a bunch of other jobs and because uh, you, you didn't have to audition. You know, you just had to sign up for for the opening night. First time I did stand-up was here in New York at the Improv and Catch a Rising Star. Me and Larry David. Uh, yeah, but you were a good stand-up. Like, that's like yeah, that part's been totally, <laughs> totally lost in the Michael Keaton history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see Did you see the Binder documentary, the Mike Binder documentary yeah. in the comments? It was well done, I thought. So I was doing that and then, and then uh, you know, the next thing I know, uh, a guy named Norman Steinberg, still a good friend of mine, was writing uh, with Mel Brooks on stuff. And he was a friend of a friend of Pittsburgh. And he was generous, really generous guy. And he, he said, hey, I had like an extra part got me on. I had like two words or something. And, and, then, and then Charlie said, hey, you ought to come down. They're meeting guys about your age. It's just a meeting. So I went and they, the guys talked to me and they said, hold on a minute. And go went to the other room, came out and said, read this. And it was a scene. And I left and they said, you know, Charlie goes, hey, you got a job. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah, they liked you. And I go, okay. So I show up and I do this job, very frightened. And, and they, they, it worked. And they turned it into a two-parter. And then it just started happening for a while. And then it just died for like a year. <laughs> there was like nothing, you know. Which was one of the best lessons because I went, oh, I see how this works. Yeah, this this is not a done deal just because you start to get a couple of gigs. You know, this is this is how this is going to be, which was but really you, good. You have a whole generation of people like Letterman does the same thing, right? He drives out there. Yeah. Billy Crystal, like it goes on yeah. down the line. All these people are just kind of going to L.A. in that 74 to 78 range, trying to get TV writing gigs, anything they can get just to kind of be around. Absolutely. It was, it was amazing when you think of it because, because I thought at the time, no one really does this. This is such an odd occupation to pursue that I, I thought writing would be fun. It would just be fun. I really wanted to act, but 
I'd love to stand up so much and I was getting good at it that I thought, well, let's just focus on that. And when I think about it, you're absolutely right. There was a group. Leno was kind of already like, he was, you know, he had been established. He was such a young guy, but he, he was so polished, I remember. But Letterman and I showed up probably weeks apart, you know. I still remember the little house he lived in. I'd go over and there was a little park, a criminal park, we'd go play basketball. Um, and there was this whole, and but it, when you think about it, there were like seven or eight people, maybe, you know, some New York guys had started moving out, you know, to work out there. Belzer had been working. I saw Richard Belzer here in New York, and he he already looked like a pro to me. Mm. And he's only a few years older than I. And and so, yeah, there was this, and you think, well, what are the odds? And then now everybody does. There's a stand-up club everywhere, you know, in shopping malls. There's, you know, it, like everybody is a stand-up. It's weird. Right. Well, I didn't even know, you know, as we talked about, we only had three channels plus the local ones in, in yeah. Boston. And you had a show, which I saw on IMDb because I was like, I wonder if I missed anything from back then. And you had a show with Jim Belushi called yeah. Working Stiffs yeah. that I literally don't remember. I didn't know about. And the reason I didn't know about it because I, I researched it, it was head to head against the Ropers. And the oh, Ropers... That was the right. spinoff of Three's Company. I'm like, I'm right. in on the Ropers. I didn't even know what was on the other channels, but it was right. CBS. It didn't make it. And now you look back and it's like, wow, you, young Michael Keaton, young Jim Belushi, yeah. um, sitcom, how did that not work? But that happened a million times back then. Yeah, all happened. And I could, can't tell you how relieved I was. that it. That really? It, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I was so glad <laughs> you, guys to were, you guys were like custodians, right? Custodians. But the concept was kind of a good idea because they were trying to, it was a, there was a lot of physical stuff in the show mm. and, and it was, you know, I was pretty good physically. And so they would, so that always be, there'd be a, um, a set piece that was a physical thing. And I think they must've watched Laverne and Shirley or something because I think Laverne and Shirley did something like that or the girls yeah. would have like a Lucy type of thing, you know? Right. Um, and that, and so that was kind of the concept, which actually was kind of a good idea, but almost every time a show and I was on three that got canceled, I think, uh, the Mary Tyler Moore thing, and, uh, uh, and although I really enjoyed that, I love I love being. I actually love showing up for work and all the things. I just never wanted to be. The thought of being in something for seven years just ugh, wasn't good. Murphy's work. Law was the other one. Yeah, uh, Which, report to Murphy. Report to Murphy. Yeah. That one seemed like a weird premise. It's a half hour, but you're a parole officer. I don't know what yeah. what was hilarious yeah, I think about that. that. You, I don't know. I, <laughs> you could always bring in a like criminal of the week or something. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, can't, can't believe it didn't make it. But then you have Night Shift, Ron Howard's first movie. Yeah, Henry yeah. Winkler is in it. He's still one of the biggest stars. He had just been the Fonz, so yeah. it had to be taken seriously. Yeah. Shelley Long's in it. She was either about to be on Cheers or had just started on Cheers. I can't remember. Just and about then, to be, I think. And then that's your breakout and you kill it. And I, I think I'm probably 13. And it was like one of those first R-rated movies. I think I R-rated yeah. comedies where it's like, oh my God, this is like the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. Right. <laughs> you're, 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 right. you're in a more, you're running a, running a call girl thing out of a morgue and it's yeah. fucking hilarious. And it's 40 years old. It still holds up. I still defend it. Wow. That's great. B Brian Grazer, the, one of the producers who had just got, was just getting started. Uh, found an article saw that article and uh man he was you know for it was really a great move on his part and he grabbed it somehow got it and went to ron howard and then they became friends and of course you know formed imagine 
And uh, yeah, that's that's where that came from. There was an article in uh, I don't know if it was New Yorker or something where he found that and bought it or something. But you you're at that age, fourteen. You know, when you're when you're a boy and you're like you start to hit that age, you know, it's like you just love comedy. And you, I, you know, you can't get enough. But then 15, 16, 17, all those ages, you were right in that, that prime zone. Plus, it probably seemed like, ooh, they're doing bad things. They're saying words, you know, which is exciting. Well, and you, I mean, that Billy Blaze Jaska is like, that was yeah. one of the iconic 80s characters. And then yes. it was clear, it was clear from that point on, good stuff's going to happen. But then Letterman, his show starts taking off that same year and you become... Yeah you go on there and you become one of the guys. Like he had, I was telling a nephew Kyle who produces this, like before you came on, like there was this crew that he had and it was all these people that became some of the biggest stars in the world. And they were kind of his crew. It was like Seinfeld, Leno, um, you, Tom Hanks, Eddie Murphy, because SNL was right there. And it was all like these early stages of all those guys. But you would come on, you would crush and you had such a good repertoire with him. Well, you know, you know, there was he when he started i think he'd bear me out on this uh, he, he was like a lot of the the late night hosts and they're they're so different now but he was he really wanted to know like on carson i only did carson one time and i i just did, went on as a guest and i was really glad that i could do it because it was i think he had about 10 more shows to go or something i don't know um they wanted to know what you were going to do what are you going to say? What's the setup? What's the thing? And Dave will tell you he was he wanted he didn't want any surprise because it, if it gets uncomfortable or goes south, then the show's done. And he yeah. really wanted to know. And so you kind of had to toe the line, or you kind of had to, you know, uh, not play along, but you know, do that. And then there comes a point where he goes, "Nah, these are the guys that I trust because they're never going to take me too far off, even if something doesn't work," you know. Um, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll end up okay. And, and so then it got really relaxing, really comfortable. The guys now all seem easier about it. They, they can roll. They really roll quite easily. All of them, you know, they're just very, they're very facile. Well, the interesting thing about back then is you go on that show and then it's just gone. Yeah. You're on it. And then there's the record of it. Now you go on and any sort of anything could end up being on social media the next day or it lives on in YouTube for the next hundred years. Yes. You didn't know that in 1983. No, that's right. That's right. Jeez, <laughs> I didn't think of that. It's true. <laughs> you could have some deranged appearance or you could have the funniest yeah. thing ever and it just was like gone. Or they'll pick one thing and play yeah. it over in something, you know, which is always nerve wracking. Yeah. Cause and you know, I, it's tricky because now at the same time, you have to be really careful, but simultaneously, just let it, let it go. You know what I mean? And go, I don't know, man, I'm just gonna be me. And we'll, you know, I trust my instincts, but you know, whatever it doesn't always work, but there's, they're so good about it. Now I think most of these guys, I noticed they, they can pick it up and they can, plus they edit now, right. you know, you know, so if you oh, go yeah. on, like sometimes I'll go on and they'll keep me on and we'll keep goofing around on and on. My segment will be this long, but they have to cut it down, you know, to fit, fit the spot. So night shift hits. Yeah. You become a thing. What happens to you? You buy a house? Like what, what, like what are the next couple months look like? You grabbing rolls, people are throwing uh, parts at you. What is it? What is it like? Yeah. You know, you know, the, a lot of stuff is coming my way. Uh, I remember a really uncomfortable meeting, uh, at Warner brothers, uh, that, and uh, guys will under uh, my P 
peers or or whomever or anyone actually actors or funny people will under understand this and <laughs> i had this go out to warner brothers the executives want to meet you you know you have a meeting i'm going okay what is it for and they said they just want to get to know you they want to know you and uh, and they were they were good guys. Uh, they were all very young at the time. Uh, uh, I liked them. I didn't really know them really, but they weren't that much older than I was. Really, they were pretty young, you know. Uh, but I mean, older than I, but uh, you know, by maybe seven years or so. And uh, I remember walking in the room thinking, I don't know what this is for. And and they were like goofing around and like it was kind of fratty, you know. And it was kind of like like. I could tell, oh, I'm there to entertain them. I'm like to be, I'm the, I'm the wild guy, you know, I'm the goofy guy and, and he's funny. We're going to sit in the room and I've felt so uncomfortable and uh. how, to, how to be, you know, like I, I can't be on, you know, and I like, you know what I mean? Unless something comes up and you just go off on something. So they thought you were fun. like Robin Williams. Yeah. Like, come yeah. in, and wind was, him up and go. Yeah. It was, it was, un, it was uncomfortable. And truthfully that, that, that night shift guy, I, I don't, I only do it if I go, what's the truth? You know, I, I always approach things as the character, you know, the guy, not, not that I wouldn't say, Ooh, there, here's an opening to do something really funny. And I would improvise something really funny or I'd find hopefully really funny, or I would find a way to, to do a thing that I knew would be funny. But it always came from a perspective of who's the character play. Stay true to who the person is always. Well, that character from night shift was so indelible. People, they didn't have a history with you. They just assumed that was you. And then you right. do Mr. Mom. And it's like, oh, oh, so he's yeah. actually a real actor. I yeah. didn't know you might to me, you might have just been Billy Blaze in the next 20 movies you made, you know? I had well, no that idea. Was, that was what that was what I feared, you know. That was what I, I feared. But I thought, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you gotta do something, uh, you gotta guard against that. You gotta set it up at least. And you know, what's the worst thing that happens is that you only get hired for that kind of guy. You knock off a couple of few years, you know, he makes them go and you move on to the next thing. I mean, it wouldn't have been the end of the world, but I really didn't want that to happen. I really, and I remember getting this thing from this guy, John Hughes, Mr. Oh, Mom, yeah. and no one had heard of John Hughes. I mean, there was, there were probably people out there who had read some stuff that he was writing. He's an advertising guy in Chicago. And, um, you know, you probably can relate to this or know this, or people have told you this. If you get a script and you, laugh out loud like big laughs like three times or you go there's something in here that's all it usually takes is go oh no no there's something there's something in here and i remember reading and thinking uh you know that makes me smile now so that's funny or oh that could be really funny or oh that's a really good way to sit whatever i thought i just knew there was something in it and i liked what it was about and in a lot of ways it was ahead of its time if you really break i always say this about that movie you should break that movie down and look at what talking about yep, the time was you know rough economically in, in america you know uh, women going into the workplace men staying at home it became part of the nomenclature mr mom you know it was an expression that was used i'm a mr mom or i'm gonna mr mom at this weekend or whatever so i knew it was i knew it was good so i met this guy john hughes and we're sitting and i really liked him he talked about himself an awful lot i didn't get much to say about it, it was john mcdonald but I remember sitting there saying to him, I listened to what he was saying about the script. And I went, hey, have you thought about directing this? I think you should direct this. And he said, no, no, I don't want to direct. I'm writing these other things and blah, 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 blah. And eventually he became John Hughes, you know, iconic 
'80s guy, a really, really good. Uh, yeah, man. yeah. Mr. Mom was fun. It was fun. It wasn't exactly. It had to be adjusted. I, my 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 partner at the time, who was my manager and kind of producer, and we uh, and and we kind of brought in. I think we brought in another writer, or we started cha- writing some scenes because it kind of was going down a road that was not really going to work comedically. I could tell. The director was a good guy. He came from advertising. He had a really good, nice visual sense. He didn't do a lot of comedy. So I started to get a little nervous about that. So, you know, you, you know how it works. You get in, the, you say, let's talk about this scene. I'm not sure this works. I have an idea, like the chainsaw scene, you know, that yeah. happened at the last minute. You know? We have this rewatchables movie podcast we do where we break these down. We did Mr. Mom, I think like a year ago or a year and a half ago. It's pretty fascinating rewatch because as you yeah. said, like, the whole Mr. Mom concept really drove the movie because it was new. And that became right. part of the selling point of the movie where it's like, no, no. So this guy, he's not going to work. And his right. wife's going to be the one who's like making, making the bacon. And yeah. he's going to be home, like trying to navigate the family. And it, it seems like yeah. crazy that this was a thing, yeah. but in 1983, it was a thing. It was, it was a thing. And now it's like, you know, I'm looking around here and there's, the hipster dads everywhere, you know, right. those sensitive guys, and, <laughs> and and uh, you know, and, and I'm thinking, wow, that's so interesting because the idea was, you know, and I also was, I was emasculated, you know, it was great, you know, I felt like I thought, uh, you know, I'm a, it was just such an interesting thing to do. It was totally clear to me though, the take on yeah. it was totally clear. I totally got what it was, you know. I said, yeah, this is really about this, and this is how this guy would feel because the chainsaw scene. What happened was, I said. I knew that the scene should be would be funny if he felt totally panicked that here comes this guy going away on a business trip with my wife and he's suave and it's the great Martin Mall being really yeah. funny. And I go, man, this guy's panicked. He's got to be panicked. You know, this is he's just insecure right now. So the the whole chainsaw thing kind of came together at the last minute. I said to the prop guy, we were running the scene and kind of getting ready, and I went something off here, and I said. Hey, go! F- I need like that, like a like a tool belt or a thing. And, and in fact, I don't even think I the the overalls. I I, I think I threw them on. Said, "Yeah, overall." He goes right with a chainsaw, and he goes, "How about this?" I go, "Great." He said, "You want these?" <laughs> and he gave me the goggles. I said, "Oh man, perfect." And then <laughs> then it just became about that, you know. And then yeah, then say uh, you I go into this thing where I go. Uh, Martin goes in, he kind of looks at me like this going on with this guy. And I go, uh, uh, you want a beer? Martin looks at me and goes, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, scotch? So he, Martin, I said this a thousand times, Martin came up with a line 220, 221, whatever it takes. Yeah. yeah well, then, so then you do two more comedies. You do Johnny Dangerously. Right. Which was a thing back in the day. I don't, I never see it on cable. I don't know. Maybe it's owned by no, some there weirdos are, there or something. Are, there are devout. Yeah, devout. It definitely was thing. And then you did Gung Ho, which became, which was another one that tapped into like, that yeah. coming out in 1986, but this whole narrative that America was having. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, with the, the American car companies were starting to lose yeah. their luster in a lot of different ways. And this movie yeah. tapped into that. The narrative behind it, I think is still pretty interesting. Yeah, you hit it on the head. That's exactly right. The narrative behind it, what it's about, and a guy, and also he's heroic. Hunt, character Hunt is heroic. He he wants to help his town. He needs to pull it together 
and kind of understand both sides. But there, in retrospect, in fact, Brian Grazer and I were talking about this. In retrospect, you kind of look back and go, "Wow, there's some, yeah, there's some that. tough stuff in there." Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was also it was 1986. So yeah. you start realizing at this point, I have to, I have to shift. I have to start making dramas. I have to at least Not like show that side of me a little bit. I think I'll tell you exactly what I think happened. I've thought about this. I think that happened when there's a scene in Night Shift. And like I said, I just came at the role. I, granted, I really wanted to riff and I wanted to, I wanted to be funny, but I, I created a character that could be funny. Uh, the basics were there and the writing, the basic writing was really good. Those guys were really good comedy writers. <clears throat> but there's a scene where Henry and I are talking. It's Christmas time. I think that we had a party and we're talking about it. And I reveal something about my father. And I remember like the tone in the room changed for a minute. And I got really self-conscious. And I think Ronnie said, hold on a minute. And then he took a break and we, there was some discussion or something. And I think he moved the camera, I think. And he shot at a different angle. And I think he went, whoa, I didn't know he was going to go there. You know, I, and, and I didn't do it. I did it because I thought that's probably what the guy would do, you know. And it was a dramatic, it's a dramatic moment in that movie. So, so I. But well, that was saying when you were talking about buying the gravestone, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm under the tree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so we, so I think it kind of happened there, but nobody was really paying attention to that except maybe Ron Howard and some other people. And, uh, and, so like that. Um, and then I got an opportunity to do clean and sober. And I thought, you know, I didn't say I need to prove myself as a dramatic actor so much as I just wanted to do this thing that I thought was really well written. I mean, I'm, I'm sure at some point I thought, you know, not for nothing, but you know, this will open things up. I was always looking to create, um, more opportunities than just get like stuck. I was very afraid of being stuck in something because I knew I'd get bored. Well, it's funny, even though you were totally different actors, I think Tom Hanks was in a very similar situation in the 80s where he was also getting typecast with certain type of roles. And Robin Williams yeah. was too, where he was just, yeah. Robin Williams was supposed to be like the, he Crazy. comes on and, he, and yeah. he's a chainsaw in a hot tub. And that's right. that's who he is in a movie. Right. And then you could see him, he starts making like Moscow and the Hudson and right. World According to Garp. He's like trying to like move away from Mork and, yeah. you know, that high energy yeah. stuff. And but he, sometimes the he, audiences don't want it. No, because he had, they usually don't want it. It's usually a, a, a problem. It was easier for me, like Robin, imagine that. Imagine having to, you know, make that leap, you know. Now, on the other hand, sometimes people go, wow, he's really good just because you're serious. They go, you're really, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean you're great. I mean, you know, if people talk about range, I would go, just because you do a comedy and do a drama, that, that has nothing to do with range. It's like, where's the range within the within all the stuff, you know? Right. Uh, but yeah, he, he, he really has work cut out for him. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever and you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday dot com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles. 
because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Do you do you feel nostalgic at all for the that run of 80s and early 90s movies, like way before we moved into the superhero era, which you ironically started, and these franchise movies and things like that, where you could just make these quirky movies that they might make it, they might not. Like the difference between, I don't know, Clean and Sober and Night Shift, right? And Clean and Sober, yeah. I think, did okay. But where you could just make these movies that now I don't even know really where you would make them. I guess unless Netflix or Amazon greenlit them, I don't even think the scripts happen. No, that's correct. You, 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 yeah, I am. Uh, well, I never really, in nostalgia in general, I never really understood until recently. Now I get it loud and clear. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, that, that time, those, I don't know why those times would ever come back. I mean, it's too bad because you're right to say, hey, this is pretty good. Let's just go make this and we'll, we'll, we'll get the money back or we might sell it right and make a ton of dough. You know, there's, I don't know if that happens anymore. You know, I don't, first of all, you know, Adam McKay was saying the other day, he said, comedy's really in a tricky spot right now. Uh, yeah. He couldn't quite put his finger on it. But, well, you know, look around, man. I just, you know, I'm a newspaper reader. And today I just had to set the times down. I went, I mean, I, I, I got too much to think about today. I got a lot to do. And every call, that's bad. That's nervous making, you know, Oof, rough. And you would think, well, this would be a time to go and be really funny somewhere. And t- it's on television. But when you think about it, so much of the great comedy came out of television anyway. You know, that that funny movie was one in about every 10, whereas on television, there was there was a lot of good comedy around if you were watching, you know, some of the... Uh, the Norman Lear stuff and the MTM stuff, and you know, some of that stuff. You watch the Bob Newhart show. The Bob Newhart show now, just watch it. It's so good. It holds up so well, you know, just so solid. That'll really make you nostalgic when you sit back and watch that. Yeah, I feel that way about Cheers, even though it's super oh, dated. But perfect. the writing perfect. of it and the how patient they were with everything, and it wasn't just like set up, set up joke, set up, set up joke. They actually... You know, they try yep. to have real moments on that show. And I, perfect. Yeah. I thinking about the comedy in 2021, I'm with you. Like there's a weightiness to everything now. Yeah. Um and also I honestly think an inability for people to laugh at themselves sometimes and to be poked fun at, you know, and that's another thing. It's a very sensitive time, just in general. And and comedy is about pushing the envelope, making people uncomfortable. Going yeah. into an area you probably shouldn't go into and, and people trusting that you're going to make the right decision with it. And now it's like nobody wants to even take a chance because they don't want to get canceled. Man, you're I, 100%, 100% right. I don't know how and it plays out, honestly. I don't either because, you know, you go, you're right. You, you go, you know, I think one reason is there's so much where everybody kind of is a star now. They walk around the streets thinking, I'm kind of in my own mood because I'm, I'm TikToking and I'm Instagramming and I'm thinking. And I, I'm, I'm kind of somebody in a weird way. They kind of are, you know, you go, okay, well, and, and then, and then 
people start taking themselves seriously and uh it's just it's just it's gotten tighter like with everything you can do and say that's why i think like curb your enthusiasm is so refreshing to people you know here's a here's a guy who does kind of horrible horrible things and says and it acts in a horrible way sometimes it's so fun so refreshing you know well it seems like certain people have been grandfathered in yeah, like, I think Curb Your Enthusiasm is grandfather. And Charles Barkley feels like he just has an incredible amount of leeway for whatever reason. Uh, Howard true. Stern does. Like, there's some people that can still push it. Um, that's but a great if, expression, if, grandfathered in. Yeah, if you're right. not grandfathered in, you're in trouble. Yeah, I yeah. think it's, you look back at some of the stuff that was really funny in the 80s, and some of it's really inappropriate or, or cross lines that just wouldn't be crossed now. And other times it's funny just because they knew it was inappropriate as they were doing it, but there was yeah. a wink, wink that now I wonder, I wonder I, if it I wonder exists. If are, I wonder, I have, I've been wondering if it's going to reach a point where people go, you know what? Fuck it. I, we can't all be careful. We're just going to, we're just going to, you know, not go out and purposely be right. inappropriate, but just say, I can't, I can't think like this all the time. Like I was watching the TNT last season, uh, the guys, that show is so good, man. And you, you know, all those guys, uh, yeah. Charles is on. It's like it's like they have nailed the combination, you know. They like don't don't touch that, don't touch the thing. Just because sometimes it even gets like not uncomfortable, but you know, you look at Shaq and Shaq will look down the thing and you go, whoa, see, I, it's kind of perfect, you know. Like they shouldn't shouldn't touch it. But one time, <laughs> one show, Charles says, uh, who's really funny, he says, uh, and he's not trying to be. He tells a story. He tells a story. They asked him where he got something like like a a, a bracelet or something they said they were just riffing and talking he goes where'd that thing come from so he says straight faced he says well i was in a steam room with a man and he gave the <laughs> I, I saw that remember that kenny smith stop. had a heart attack <laughs> yes they could not stop laughing and because it was hysterical because him it was so great and i thought that's really great because now you say it people might say well, what would be wrong with being in a studio? You know, right, you know, right. It was just funny. It was just the image of him sitting in naked guys in a steam room. Right. You know. Yeah, ball busting. Ball busting has become a lot harder to pull off. You talked about the fame stuff and how everybody's famous. There was a really good article in the New Yorker a couple of weeks ago by Chris Hayes about this. About is one of the reasons society feels dysfunctional now is because fame is dysfunctional, and now there's more people than ever who are famous for varying degrees, whether they have 2000 fans or a thousand or a million or a hundred thousand, everybody's dealing with the consequences of being a public figure. And maybe that's why it's so messed up right now. And maybe, and you know, I never, I mean, you know, without being sounding too pretentious, I always felt a little nervous. I felt really good at work, uh, on a stage, I never really, I still don't feel that great. First, A, talking about myself. You know, you, I was raised very Catholic, so that's one reason. But also, yeah, I, I, it's like too much, you know. And I, 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 now everything's everywhere, you know. And, and, and then you go, well, you better be out there, dude, if you want to keep doing this. And I go, all right. And I try that. And then I really don't want to be out there. And, and I don't know. It's a really odd feeling, you know. If I was starting out, and I think now if I said, hey, I think I'll go, go to Los Angeles and be this. I don't, I don't think I'd make it. I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably be a kid who would make things on his phone would be my guess. That's probably what I would do. Well, when you had that, 
when you had that first wave of fame, how did you deal with it? Were there repercussions? Like, did you cross the line? Were you partying too much? Like, what was, what, how were you dealing with that first wave in the early mid eighties? Oh, I was probably, before I even moved to LA, I was probably partying too much, but never, but partying like the, goof, <laughs> the goofball that I was, you know, right. my buddies, you know, doing stuff you guys probably did when you were growing up, just yeah. doing stupid, silly stuff, you know, um, and having a lot of laughs, having a lot of fun. Not really, you know, it got confusing because now there's a lot of attention on you and got, probably got confusing for a while, but no, it didn't really, didn't, I really, you know, nothing changed, you know, never drug guy or, uh, so that wasn't, no, I mean, it, it, there's just more pressure all the time, you know, and, yeah. and that, takes a, that takes a long time to figure out, you know, I was young, I was really young, so that took a while to figure out. Well, the weirdest thing that happened to you, and it's, you know, it's been discussed ad nauseum, but when you take the Batman role yeah, and everybody's reaction in the moment, first of all, nobody understood what was going to happen with that Batman movie. They were right. reviving this series and the whole superhero infrastructure wasn't in place yet. But then they picked you and everybody was like, wait, what? Right. And this was right as we're heading into like, it's the premier magazine era. It's William Goldman writing for a New York magazine. And it's like, people are really starting to care about the movie industry and who gets cast and what movies are busts and which movies become hits. And they, there's this kind of bigger interest in it. Siskel and Ebert are, you know, hitting their peaks. And so yeah. you get cast at Batman and it was, I think one of the most stunning casting decisions ever. And then you crushed it. And in a weird way you win, but for a year, it didn't seem like you won at all. It seemed like you were going to mess up the movie. Yeah. Totally. Well, you really, I, I already knew you about this about you because and then we talked about it once, but that you really take that big view of like culturally what happens uh, in, you know, culturally what happens. Cause you're, you're right. That, I never probably thought about it like that, but that I'm sure you're right. That is what was going on. There was a, an awareness premiere magazine and movies were a thing. There was that whole thing where before that, I think people just made a movie and did a movie and, went to a theater but the, that's, right. that's what was happening so there was a real there was a real awareness and the thing with me that i i didn't get it i mean actually when i think back about it i kind of see probably now or i thought back about it a long time ago i went oh oh yeah i guess i could see some people who really care about this at all going wait a minute that doesn't fit with what i what i see or what i want weirdly i guess i kind of get it i just I never thought about stuff like that. And I didn't know there were that many people who thought about it one way or another. So right. I'm kind of amazed that people are actually sitting about the, thinking about this. You know, shouldn't you be thinking about something else? So I, in retrospect, I went, oh, yeah, if you're like a really insane fan person about this thing, that that could be off-putting. And you're right. Then he had to sit there and uh, I distinctly remember it was in the Wall Street Journal. I was flying back. I was, I was we already started shooting. And I used to, I, you know, my son was young then, and if I had a minute off, I, I mean, I, I used to take the Concorde, and I didn't have a lot of dough then. The Concorde was really expensive, but really cool to fly. I met Prince on the Concorde one time. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, you take off, you could be back in New York in like, I don't know, four and a half hours or something like that, or less time. It, kind of like, it, was, it was like a rocket ship. I'd fly home all the way to LA, spend two and a half days with my kid, and then fly back to London and you know I did that two or three times I was so tired and uh I was on there sitting and reading reading the Wall Street Journal and I see you know how they do those uh I don't know if they still do it but it's it's kind of a drawing you know 
of a, of a person. Not, it's not a caricature. It's, not, it's actually not a photograph. I can't explain it. Um, I'll, find, I'll find a paper someday and show you what I mean. But it was an image of me, and I, you know, a likeness. And I thought, huh, I wonder why I'm in there. And then I read the article, and it was about, what, what does it matter with these people? He can't be Batman. That was the thrust. Of, that's, that's where I heard about it. And I, I remember going, I didn't even, I thought it was weird. Right. That was odd. That it was, a, and then and then I guess I I don't ever remember it making me too worried, but I must have thought about it. I must have said, "Oh, I'm starting to feel uncomfortable now." But I just kind of had to go do the gig. And you're right. Then then people are waiting. And then of course it's like, "Oh my God, this is the only way it could be done." There there could be no other way. I mean, the risk taker was really me, but Tim, Tim, and. All of us, actually, Jack and everybody involved, because if it was going to, if it was not going to work, it was going to be bad. Yeah, the moves yeah. back in the day were either you do the no-name guy, like when Christopher Reeve, nobody really knew who he was yet, and he's right. Superman, or yeah. you get like just a famous star. Right. But they 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 kind of go the third way, which is like, no, no, we're actually we're going to hire a real actor and yeah. somebody who you might not have expected, and he's going to kill it. It yeah. there was also like in the late eighties, and I don't really know the reason for this. And maybe there's a bunch of different smaller reasons. Maybe it's because these movies were on cable a lot. Um, we had VCRs at that point, so we could yeah. rewatch things over and over again. By like the late eighties, people felt real ownership over movies and franchises that they loved. So like Batman was this TV show that I loved as a kid and a lot of people loved as a kid. And we're kind of waiting for somebody to do the movie correctly. And then there was this weird ownership, like we were invested in it. Like we had a vote and it's like, we don't have a vote. We're just going to see it. You know, yeah. same thing with like the 48 hours sequel or yeah. when like they, you know, years later when they brought the star Wars franchise back yeah, or whatever, it's like, these, this is my movie. Don't screw this up. Right. And that's right. the first time I remember really feeling that with the Batman thing. It was a movie they hadn't even made yet. And people were mad about it. And it was like this yeah. new era we moved into. Right. With, True. With fans, like feeling like they could affect content yeah. that hadn't even been made. And now I think they do in a big way in that whole universe. I mean, a huge way, you know, that whole universe has become really interesting to me. Actually, I, I, I never, I had zero interest in all that. I just find it interesting, like societally, you know, or, or, and how well they do it, you know, how well Marvel does things and not DC and all that stuff. You know, I, I, I kind of had no interest. I did the movie and I watched it. I went, yeah, it's fun. I really liked it. And then I did another one. And then I went, I don't, whatever. And I just, that was kind of going on. And then I looked at it and I went, wow, just on a, just on a corporate level, you know, a cultural level. It's amazing. You know, I mean, well, I mean, it's amazing. And you're right. People, fans kind of do control. Like I think they figure out, Oh, here's what we got to give them because they really get it. And then, the, then they, they really figured out how to do it. People talk about it in ways that still kind of surprises me. I don't know anything about any of that. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I, I'm playing catch up with those kind of movies. Oh, yeah. But I think the 1989 Batman is patient zero for everything. Yeah. I mean, literally everything. And I don't think for people listening to this who are maybe, I don't know, under 40, who don't remember, it was the biggest thing in the world when it came out. It was like everybody had to go and it became the only thing anyone talked about for three weeks. And it was so successful and accomplished so many different things, like for giving Tim Burton the chance to direct that. Nobody would have, right. you know, giving right. a young creative filmmaker, being able to get Nicholson and like the kick-ass part yeah. and all this stuff that lays this blueprint. 
but ultimately it completely changed movies and probably led yeah. to a lot of the stuff I hate about movies now. You know, yeah. in a weird way, the stuff that we love about movies was semi-sacrificed because that movie was so successful. And now that's like how they have to feel like half of the movies. Like, like you made Birdman, what was that, 2014? Yeah, and one of the remember. one of the reasons it was such a delight was it's like wow this is such a creative movie why don't they make movies like these you yeah. know and I don't know it's part of I think it's just easier to try to make these movies that can be worldwide yeah and part of a franchise yeah and they keep they keep the business afloat I guess I guess you know um, I you know the, if you got that then maybe you can slide another one or two but you, like you said it used to be. You know, there'd be, you know, 12, you know, of various t- styles or genres of yeah. movies. Yeah. Were you, yeah. were you, did you have any and, you idea? Know, I, just, I just realized also what a risk it was for Tim, because you're right. People don't talk, I don't think, often enough about him doing, doing, doing Batman, the thing we take so seriously, you know, but he, he changed everything. He changed so much about the industry, you know, just, you know, by his take on that. Uh, what he what he saw visually. But you knew yeah. though, because you had done Beetlejuice with them, so you knew you knew what was going to happen. No, yeah, but but we didn't know. We didn't know if we could pull it off because it was enormous. It was enormous undertaking. It's really difficult to make for him to make for all of us, but especially for him. Now that was that was very very risky. That if that went down, that was going down in a big big way. But I knew this was a really creative guy. This was a you know. A, I just Were you? Were you prepared for the level of fame that came out of that movie and how gigantic that movie was? Because I don't, I don't see how you would ever think that could happen. No, no, I, I, I that, yeah, that became that was that was big. That was uh, gobs. I was a bit gobsmacked, as the Brits say, probably. But you know, fortunately, I had been around doing some stuff, so it wasn't like I, I you know, some kid from a, a farm in the middle of Indiana going home. You know, it's kind of like. Yeah. Well, okay. This is big. This is another. This is another level. You know, because because it was it was international. Yeah. You know, international. Yeah. 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 Any country. Yeah, I was yeah. watching the Val Kilmer documentary, and he was talking about how much he hated wearing the suit and how yeah. awful the suit was and how cumbersome it was and what a nightmare yeah. it was. And then they tried to get him to a second one, and he's like, "I just don't want to wear the suit again." Was the suit yeah. that bad? We're bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it sounded miserable. It. Yeah, it's miserable. Well, it's pretty miserable. <laughs> but in a way, it's also fun. And it's also really, it worked for the, for how I, for the approach, you know, work for the approach to the guy. For me, I just, you know, it's a tired, somewhat tired actor expression, but I just used it. I said, okay, well, how do you, how do you use this? You know, right. use the thing, you know, what's your inner discipline to, to kind of, you know, to grind it out every day, you know, to grind, you know, my back wasn't the same for me for, for a lot, a lot of years. Really? Yeah. And I also, I was playing hockey in a league and that didn't help that, that position. I'm, and I'm, you know, I was never a great skater. I didn't learn to play hockey until I was like 31 or something. Uh, and, and, uh, maybe later. Well, you made um, a hockey movie. Yeah. That's how I learned to play. That's how I got out of the league. And I, and I was smart enough to, I, I felt so in love with it. It's the greatest game to play. I mean, I played everything when I was a kid. Hands down, man, if I could have played hockey when I was a kid, you know, we couldn't, we had nowhere to go. I wanted to, but my dad would have had to have taken us to a rink 
so far away. He was working two jobs. He was never going to do that. Plus, we could have never afforded the equipment. But, but uh, that that that's that's of all the games I ever played, might might be the most fun. And I was never really that good, so I had to learn for the movie. And then I then I just started playing and joined the league. I was smart enough the first year to, to join a full contact league. Oh my god! Which was totally stupid. First of all, I wasn't as good as any of the other guys, and then I got smacked around. And then the next year, we changed, they changed it to like you couldn't hit in the open ice or something, or you couldn't hit you know minimal contact, and it just kept getting a little less violent. It was fun though. Did you did you see when they? I mean, they they kept making Batman movies over and over again. Yeah. Did you see the ones that Nolan made, or were you just out? Where you're like, I'm out on the franchise I was into. I'm not going to watch. Or did you actually watch them? No, and, and and there's, I swear to God, there's no. I almost hesitate to even talk about this because I think people like may have interpreted it as, well, he he was angry. I had no feeling about one way or another. I just, it's not the kind of movie I would probably run to see. I mean, that's right. a little weird because I started it with Tim Burton and all those guys. You would think I'd be curious enough. Uh, I've never seen. I, uh, the only thing I could say is the th- the one I turned down and said I I can't do this. That I know would have been painful because, you know, that kind of, you went, oh man, you know, my opinion, you just took something, you know, something that he created and, you know, and, and you decided to go there. That I, that, that would have been, I wouldn't have been crazy about watching that. So I may have, I may have like walked through the living room and went, wow. And I couldn't watch it. Besides that, the others, I just, and, and I would love, I, I, I did watch a little bit of one because Christian Bale's like a monster. I mean, it's unbelievable. And and Chris Nolan is so talented. I think I watched a little bit of that. And I was, I thought, wow, it's so different technically what they do. And, hmm. uh, it, you know, that's impressive. But but I couldn't tell you what they're about, really. Well, I mean, there's been a lot written about why you turned down that third Batman movie. But yeah. nobody talks about it. Was, it, was. it no, it was really, <laughs> it was really because Bonds, Bonds had left the Pirates. You were an emotional tailspin. That's right. The, exactly. the Pirates. Had completely exactly. fallen apart. You never yes. got over the hump. And yeah. I don't think people realize the ramifications it had on your life in the mid-90s. You get it. You get it. You get it. it took me a what, lot of years to recover. What do you, when you go back, first of all, nobody's made the perfect documentary of the early 90s pirates. By the way, here's, here's a very Bond story. Okay. You're going to find, you, well, you probably already are because of what you, you do. You're going to sit around one day and somebody's going to be talking to you and you're going to start telling a story about something. And then it's going to hit you. You're going to go, wow, I'm a guy who actually has stories. Like, you know, you sit around and you go, man, this guy's got so many great stories. They'll, like, they'll say to you, hey, what's so-and-so like? You go, oh, man, this guy has so many stories. And then you go, wait, I think I'm one of those guys. <laughs> when did this happen? <laughs> yeah. So I called Bonds one day because I knew him a little bit. You know, I knew Bobby Bonilla, who's such a great guy. And, and you know, they, Bonds was amazing. Uh, I mean, my theory on him was he went, he looked at everything. You know, these guys blown up, you know, hitting 150 home runs, you know, like two seasons and stuff. And he's going, not only am I a better athlete than these guys, I said, I can, I just can't, I can't, I can't keep up with that. If, if, you know, how am I going to keep up with that? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, what doing what we're, I'm not going to say a lot. And he probably, he probably said, Okay, let's level the playing field, right? And and see what happens. You know, 
Now, now you know, he also had, you know, some attitude problems when he was in the burg that weren't, weren't too cool and everything, but he was a young guy. So one day I call him and he, and, uh, cause I forget, I think I had him come to a premiere or something, uh, in Pittsburgh. I did. And, you know, he was a good guy and everything. So I called him back to talk to him about something. And it's like November and they had gone. So they were probably, that might've been a playoff year. I'm trying to think what year it was. So, you know, you're playing up in October, maybe, maybe not quite, maybe September, whatever. And it's like, you know, a couple months later at the most. And his wife says, uh, wait, I'll go get him. And he goes, and he's kind of out of breath. They go, hey, man, how you doing? We're talking. I go, what are you up to? He goes, I was, I was just working out. <laughs> Me like a dummy. I go, uh, really? Why? What are you doing? I'm thinking he's, he's getting ready for something. And there's a pause. And then he says, what do you mean? I go. Well, I mean, why are you working out? He goes, I'm a professional baseball player. <laughs> you know, so whatever he was doing, maybe he was doing, maybe he wasn't doing, probably was doing, he was also on it, training, yeah. working on it, you know? Yeah, like LeBron yeah. and the, all the greats. That's 365 days man. a year. 100%, man, 100%. Like, you know, I saw the coolest thing this guy Ryan Reynolds did for, the, uh, for this kid, for the Pirates. It's really good. They showed him where he stayed after one day and all he was working on was like this to feel to center, to center how to how to how to feel the guy was working with him went, you know, to to pick up the ball properly. You know, this cross step kind of thing. He was doing it over and over and over again. And they talked about he'll stay and like work longer and take extra BP and stuff like that, work on little things. Those are the guys. Those are the guys, you know, those are the guys that get really good, if not great. Yeah, I tell my kids that because both of my kids play sports. It's like you hit a level where everybody is as good as you. And the yeah. ones that go the extra level are the ones that are just yeah. they're obsessed with course, it. They're doing it every day. Absolutely. And then there's, of course, guys who just have some sort of God-given thing. That right. Yeah. You hit this Bo, Jack Bo Jackson shows up, but that's it. Yeah. Um, I agree with so, Bo Jackson. God. I mean, we. I was talking to, uh, I had a couple friends over yesterday and we were talking about if you could change the course of somebody's career and just remove the injury they had, who would be your number one draft pick? And we all instinctively said Bo Jackson. Really? Yeah. Because he, I think, people don't, people don't talk about what he did enough because there were guys who played two, two sports, which is really impressive, but he was really good at both sports. Oh for yeah. A, for a long time. We did a 30 for 30 about him and we didn't even really have, it was one of the only ones where we didn't even really care what the structure was. It was just like, Let's just make sure we get a Bo Jackson interview and just show some highlights. This thing's going to work. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, kind of this, there's no way this could fail with the Bo Jackson yeah. highlights and this whole generation of people who hadn't really seen it yet. And it, it, it was what it was. It was Bo Jackson. Oh, man. There and you go. Wasn't he, wasn't he the first one to, to, to break his bat? over? Oh over yeah. His he was the first one to climb yeah. the wall, all that stuff. If you yeah. saw, if you saw Sid Bream, would you like, would you punch him? Like what would happen? <laughs> would you knee, knee him in the balls? It wasn't Sid. It wasn't Sid. It was uh, it was uh, Francesco Cabrera, I think. Uh, well, he had the hit, but Sid had, Sid had the man. slide. The slowest guy in the league somehow scored from second. I, I know. always thought, because, you know, obviously I'm a Red Sox fan and people know about our iconic losses. And there's been, yeah. you know, the Cleveland has their thing and Buffalo, Minnesota. That That Pittsburgh stretch where they can't get over the hump and then that Braves game, which is one of the great games ever. ever. And then the way they lost and... Who is who is it? Van Slyke is just 
yeah. slumped in center field for like 10 minutes. And I, oh. that game, that was one of the most dramatic games of my life. Ever, ever. And if that throw is just off, uh, uh, you know, like, like four or five feet the other way, he probably get, he probably gets thrown out. I was, that was so upsetting. So Sean, my, was a, was still young and I was coaching on baseball and stuff. And he, you know, we were really into baseball and watching everything. He was so hard <laughs> years and years and years go by, maybe like five years ago, six years, no longer, maybe seven, eight years ago. We're talking about baseball or something's going on. And he shook, he's got a very good sense of the humor. And he says, dad, when do you think we can, <laughs> what was the, the, the adjective? When do, when do you think we can give up this, this not, not immature, uh, this kind of fruitless, unless, yeah, this fruitless hatred of the Atlanta Braves. And like, this, like never, never, <laughs> ever, never. Here's another great story. I was making a movie, I was making a movie in Atlanta. Me and oh, John. No. Yeah. John Hancock's ball, uh, uh, kind of a baseball fan, director. We're making a, making a, a founder. Yeah, uh, good one. So I go, hey, let's go, let's go see the Pirates. Uh, uh, Macacho was playing. He's a really good, really good guy. Um, and uh, I said, let's go, let's go, let's go watch a Braves game. And I'm still hating them inside. And uh, the tomahawk chop. Tom on top, like gives him gives you visceral reactions. Yes. <laughs> Get the shakes. Sweat. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, so uh, like Albert Brooks and broadcast news. Yeah. Uh, so So uh, I go. We got to go through the Braves organization. She goes. It's down there at their stadium. I'm like, well, all right, whatever, you know. And I'm thinking, I'm going to hate all these people. <laughs> and, and we show. You start to call and say, well, meet us here and set up. They were the nicest people. They are the classiest, nicest people in the world. They did everything just right. They were, they were made it easy. were really friendly. Weren't like cloying, like, you know, like too much. You just said, Jim, go here, have a nice time and meet this guy and great seeds and stuff like that. I was so disappointed. Yeah. It's almost <laughs> like you wish you had a gun. So are you, yeah. are you pirates and then... Steelers, Penguins, or like our Pirates, like first, or is it everybody? It's everybody, but it, it kind of like romantically has to be always be the Pirates, just because you know that's how it all started with me when I was a little kid. So you, know? you must have had a chance to buy in, right, and be minority owner, some of that stuff. That's a whole other conversation I'd like to have. You know, I never had that, never had that chance, like a token. They never thing. asked you. No. Really, that's such yeah. a mistake. Yeah. You could have Here's been like the, the face of the franchise. Here's the, well, yeah. Well, maybe that wouldn't be so good. <laughs> maybe that's but, not good for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I, I always said, if that ever happened, I would quit, quit everything for a year. So I ain't doing anything but that. Only that. Only that. 24-7. That's all I want to do. But I got to have some kind of say. Right. Can't well, be a token thing. Like, hey, shows up in there. Well, you, you could have like that A-Rod somehow is involved with the Timberwolves ownership. I don't think yeah. he put up a ton of money. Yeah. But he's in is there and he's like the face of it. That I don't know why that couldn't yeah. have happened for yeah, you. Do you think they do you think they call him and say, hey, there's this kid at, the, you know, uh, Florida State International Ag Palace College of Agriculture. Right. What do you think? Or do you think you go, I don't know, I'm just going to show up for the, the dinner. You know, My, you know. But what My, if you did it, if you did it, wouldn't you want to go? Ah, man, I I want to go. I want to go to the Dominican Republic. I want I want to find something. Wouldn't you? Well, 
from what I know about this stuff, you don't really want to be, they call it the minority owner. You don't want to be the minority owner unless you have some sort of pull. And either that pull can be, they structured it so that you have like real say, or the owner that has the say is somebody that you're really tight with. Otherwise, you just basically bought the most expensive season tickets of all time. Right, right. Exactly. That's the trick. I was with, you know, Phil Lind, this guy, Phil Lind, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah. He's a great guy. Great guy. And a great story. Big, big, big fisherman. Big Atlantic salmon fisherman, trout fisherman. Uh, But did it? He was was talking to him about how all that works and, you know, what he thinks they're worth and et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's, and it's a bunch of rich guys who are all used to being in charge on their own yeah. of things. And now yeah. they have to deal with all these other rich guys. I thought the pirates had some ownership stuff though, over the years. feels like, yeah, I don't know. feels like you could have like some opportunities. It feels like you put it, I still think you could do it. I still think there's time. This yeah, could be, this could be, uh, this could be a fun decade. It's, it's just a business where you go, you, you, you're either in or you're out. And I'm, I don't, I don't like that. I like the small market thing. Yeah. I like when teams do it, but you're good for a year, right? You maybe get two seasons out of that. Then you got to restructure and sort of. So at some point, somebody's got to pay somebody. Yeah, you got to you got to you got to say how much how much okay, and then you got to pay that pitcher or that catcher or whomever. Right. You just got to pay somebody. Yeah, Tampa Tampa's figured out the best. They yes. they just over and over again they're stockpiling, stockpiling, and then the perfect time to trade the guy. They always like Blake Snell last year. It's like, Blake, thanks for everything. We'll see you later. We're sending you off for more young guys that then we're going to trade five years from now. Are you following the Steelers or no? The Roethlisberger thing's rough. This is why your uh, your people wanted this to run a week from now. And I was like, no, it's got to be, we got to run it on Tuesday's pod. And I got to get Keaton's thoughts on the Steelers. This Roethlisberger thing, great career, two Super Bowls, but this is now now rough to watch. It's rough. It's painful. It's painful. I couldn't even watch Sunday. I don't know why everybody was talking about like that. That oh, this could be. I went. It's Aaron Rodgers. It's a, and it's a good team. I mean, I, I don't see how you think this anything's gonna. Happen. I couldn't watch. Literally, couldn't watch. I couldn't take it. I was. I also had to be on an airplane at a certain point. But I thought I kind of don't want to. My brothers are texting me constantly. You know, saying talking about specifics. I'm going. I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I can't talk about it. It's you know, it's too bad. It's such a great organization. Tomlin's great. You know, well, I think I mean, that's why people are optimistic because Tomlin's been such a great coach yeah. that every time it seems like it's over or they've hit, you know, up, this is, this is, and then all of a sudden they'll rally and they'll upset somebody because of him. Yeah. But Roethlisberger now, it's just, he, it's, yeah. he can't move. Like he's a statue. No. Yeah. I don't, I don't quite understand all that whole thing. We could talk privately about what, what that's all about. Like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know what. I mean, you know, well, it's loyalty. I think it's loyalty to the, all the stuff he's done to the franchise. It's hundred percent yeah. loyalty, which is really, really admirable and 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 good. But but you go, yeah, but it's somewhere. And in fairness, man, remember at the beginning he would hit a hole on the ball and he could get hit a lot harder. Just because he's big doesn't mean he doesn't hasn't been beat up. You know, he has been. Uh, but there's a lot. There's a lot that I don't understand. Like a lot that I don't understand. I, I just don't get it. Um, well, he's I almost think, like a he's almost like a tight end. Where yeah, he, that, he was so big and strong, he was just taking these hits where he'd have these two guys dragging him yeah. 15 times a game. And he was yeah. so strong, he could fend him off. But at some yes. point, the hits start adding up. You know, you're like a has car. To. Yeah, it has to. Exactly. But I mean, I don't get the whole what the whole mentality is, you know, the, or, the organization. Not just about him, but I'm not sure what, what the thinking is. You know? 
I worry, I'm saying this is it, I worry about these young guys who came and it's a storied franchise. I worried they're going, wait a minute, this is, you know, what are we doing? We thought, we thought there was a thing here, you know. Um, but, you know, there's so many good teams now. I mean, there's some like, really good teams. Just so so you, moved to LA and the, you moved to L.A. right as they were in the Super Bowl run. Yeah. They were like four and five. Yeah. When so, I was growing up, it was Steelers, Cowboys. That's it. That's just who yeah. won the who won the Super Bowl every year. And then yeah. I was in Boston and all the kids were like, the kids that weren't the Patriot fans were Steelers or Cowboys because they're front runners. And was like, oh, I, right. I know I don't like that person. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they had all these front runner fans all spread around the country, the Steelers right. or Dallas. But then the real Pittsburgh fans, yeah, you know, you always know, you can tell. You don't have the accent though. No, no. You know, you know, I, I never oddly... I never really had one. I don't know. I mean, that's probably not true. Maybe when I was young, young, I had a little bit of one. I never consciously said, I better lose that accent. I just don't, I just don't know what, what happened there. But, you know, accents and dialogues, they're, they're dialects, they're disappearing. Like, even in, even in Boston, you know, and, and as you know, you know, Boston can change from, from, you know, a few blocks away, you can sound different. Like, you know, in, in this movie Worth, I, you know, Ken Feinberg's from Brockton, you know, Oh, nice. He doesn't, he doesn't speak like like Robbie Robinson does. In fact, Robbie, the guy, the guy from Spotlight, I played. The, they sometimes Robbie doesn't even have a, have an accent. And he told me he said it depends on where I am. If I walk in and I'm interviewing some guy and he's you know fireman down in you know Revere or something like or Lynn, you know or something like that, he says oh, then I start to I start to then I talk like this. Not not an affectation. We just can't help. It. You know. You know. Spotlight but is one of the. But a lot of cities they don't have them. If you notice anymore, you know, if you, you know, because a lot of the transplants. Yeah, it's it, but it's still it? if you go to the dark, the deeper parts of the city, the yeah. extended, the suburbs, and the extended yeah. stuff. That's it. We we. I mean, there's a million movies we could have talked about. Spotlight, I think, is one of the best movies of the past ten years. And Thanks. Yeah, I know you're great. obviously proud of that one. Listen, yeah. as as a forty year fan of yours, I'm I'm so glad you're still cranking and doing good content. We, you had forty years of movies we could have talked about. Yeah, That's why yeah. I wanted to concentrate on one decade. But um, yeah, I know well, you'll come back at some point. This was do, fun. You had a good time. Yes, after I do forty more, I'm glad I'm I'm glad you're still doing good work though. It's really been Thanks. fun to watch. And so you have Dope Sick. That's on Hulu, right? And then uh, really Worth good. is already on Netflix. Yeah. So there you go. All right. It was good to see you. I'm glad we finally did this. Thanks. All right. All right. This podcast was produced by Kyle Creighton. Don't forget about the Prestige TV podcast where on Wednesday night, I will be breaking down a Succession Hall of Fame episode with Joanna Robinson. Stay tuned for that back on this feed on Thursday. And also don't forget about the rewatchables we put up on Monday night. We did the redeparted, me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy. So if you missed that, what a week. Such a great Boston sports week and 15th anniversary of The Departed. A lot of Boston stuff this week. Anyway, I'll see you in this feed on Thursday. Go Red Sox.